You've reached the Union of Metro Street podcast, where we discuss the San Diego music scene of the late 80s and all of the 90s, from the shows we worked to the shows we played. Here we go.
So that was a track from Buck09, and we got Andy here. So what's up, brother? How you doing, guys? Doing good. How about you? So what what track is that? That is Less Than Comfortable. I okay. I wanted to open with that one because I wrote the music for that one. Oh, really? And then it, it barely didn't make it on the album. Oh, really? So, um those bastards the guys the guys were um we were all going like we just needed like one or two more tracks and i'm like i showed them the track a while back and they really liked it and i was like what was like what about this track and yeah they were like yeah let's do that track so immediately we just wrote it in like two days oh really yeah once pebsworth wrote put the lyrics in and everything else the formula was already there so we just went and wow slapped it on the record Uh, it's it seems like it's more like you would have taken more time to layer it up and everything. I mean, that's yeah. It was it was a really fun song. It's one. Of, it's one. So of my it just favorites. came easy. Mm-hmm. It's one oh, of my that's favorites. amazing. Yeah. And again, so the people know you're, you're on bass on it. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's that's really cool. So is this for the new album that you guys are recording right now? Or no, that was 2008. Oh, okay. For that one, but um, we are finishing our new record right now. Okay. Yeah, it's going through the final final post production stages. Okay. Right now, so. And how's that going? Pretty good. We're, we're pretty excited about it. Yeah. It's only been in the making for three years, but hey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, you know. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it takes some time because, you know, everyone's out of town. Mm-hmm. And you just came in. Where, where again are you from? I live in the Sierra Foothills. Okay. Near Yosemite. Yeah. So. And you just came down specifically for this and a couple other things. Yeah. So yeah. we're extremely grateful for that. Yeah. The first time, I've, first time I've been able to travel down here without having a show and somewhere to be. You know, right. So. Right. Less stress mm-hmm. other than the drive. Yeah. I don't mind the drive, but um, when you have to be somewhere and load in and do all that, it doesn't leave a lot of time. So Right. So Yeah, because yeah, the last time was the Rolando Street Fair. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we were... Had to just get in there, checked in, load in, and then we had to wait on that rain situation for a while. Yeah, and it was like, it was like, uh, everything was kind of like last minute in a sense. It was like, hurry up and wait, and then, yeah, and then, all right, get your stuff out. And mm-hmm. it was crazy. Yeah, and get it covered from the rain. That was yeah, and we weren't sure if you guys were going to play at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was that nice respite where there wasn't really, I mean, it kind of sprinkled a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I was amazed that it was it happened at all. I mean, especially for here with all this rain. I mean, we had rain yesterday. I went from La Jolla to PB to get a truckload of, um, it's this mulch. And I got rained on like, you know, heavy, heavy rain, which we're not used to down here at all. And then I got loaded up and it was just sprinkling and then going back to La Jolla and the sun came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about microclimates, it was just... It was absolutely insane, right. but that Rolando, uh, the Rolando Fair show was really fun too. Right? Yeah, yeah. They so al- they almost were going to scratch it because it looked like it was going to rain, and they're all looking on their their smartphones, radar, and everything. Right? Yeah, that's they're what like, I was doing. They're like, I don't know. You know, the cell looks like it's coming in, and we'd wait ten minutes, and and then it did nothing happened, and finally they were just like, "All right, go get up there, play your songs." But if it starts to rain, we got to shut it down. Right, right. So we just got up there, and luckily we got away with an hour. And, and then also, and there was a good turnout for it. Too. Oh yeah, no, it was. There. God, the heads that was there, it was really amazing. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, everything about it, it felt to me personally, I was inspired. Mm-hmm. It just it reminded me of like a a adult backyard party from the eighties. You know, mm-hmm. it had the beer garden. Everyone was mellow, just having a good time. And even though it was raining, everyone was like, yeah. 
And, or, the, or and, and the highlight was uh, Scott getting up on stage and doing yeah. an Irish drinking song. Yeah. So, yeah. That was a real treat. That's uh, that's something that hadn't happened in a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he hasn't come up on stage with uh, with us for, I mean, forever. So 20 years at least. So he's never been on stage with you guys when, right. since you've been in the band. Yeah, I can tell. It was it was just really cool for um, John to invite him up and sing the lyrics. I could tell he was he was really stoked about that too. And his his kids were there and mm-hmm. got to see him perform. And yeah. Got to prove that he was actually in the band and he knows how to play. <laughs> well, uh, Jonas actually comes up to the mic and he says, "Introducing the writer of the Irish drinking song." And so that's when I think Scott got all like super pumped. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah no, you could see just because you know we were back there with them and he was we were talking for a while mm-hmm. and just everything about it he was just nothing but smiles. And, you know, that's, that's the difference when, you, when you're at a show and everyone's just smiling and having a good time. The energy just kind of carries. And then even though, you know, San Diego is supposed to be sunny. And also, wasn't this the – because of COVID, weren't you guys supposed to play last year or the year before? So this was kind of like we're actually making this happen. So the expectations of doing it, Scott's there. Everyone smiles. I mean – Actually, it wasn't it wasn't because of COVID. It was because of John's heart attack. Yeah. That oh, okay. Happened. Yeah. I think the first original reason in 2020 was the was COVID. Mm-hmm. Was, we were supposed to play it like within a couple, two or three weeks, and then they said they canceled everything. Okay. And then um, the following year, we we're supposed to play it again. John had his heart attack, so then we had to push it back. Because we actually had a tour lined up mm-hmm. um, in 2020 for it was like a four was it four shows I think. Yes, though I think it was in March, the ones we had to cancel. We had to cancel those yeah. as well. It was just the Arizona, Vegas, San Diego, LA run. Right. That, and, and then we pushed the two week, the, the tour with Mustard Plug back. Yep. Back and that was because of John. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And all this while trying to squeeze in recording time. Right. When everyone's in to- town. Together. Well, we, we kind of, when we kind of do a, like an a impromptu rehearsal, mm-hmm. we'll do some stuff there, but. Most of the time, all the writing and recording is done remotely. Oh, okay. Yeah, in our in our separate homes. That okay? Because of the fact that I've got all these projects going, I'm trying to juggle all that. I'm a in the room. I mean, I can sit on. We do this. We'll sit on the couch and we'll just kind of lightly play with my little practice amp. But for me, I have to be plugged in. It has to be loud to the point of where I should probably wear earplugs. And I get that energy. So how is it recording remotely? Because it's to me, it just blows my mind, and especially with how many people are in the band. Well, for Andy, it, it's pretty good because he has a recording studio set up in his house. I do. So you just you go in there and it's like, yeah, you don't, in your in your skimpies or in your fuzzy robe, yeah. like whatever time of day you do it on your own time. Yeah. And that's what's that I can appreciate because yeah. I was actually going to wear my slippers all day today mm-hmm. and a robe so I could be super casual. Oh, you're going <laughs> to dress up today. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm not wearing a, a bright green construction shirt. So that is mm-hmm. that is kind of dressing up for me or my my well, freaking that, that goes for both of us. <laughs> <I know. laughs> or my vest. Some yeah. High vis wear. But um, yeah, so. Tell me about the studio. What what what's in your studio? How how's it set up? Um, I have a a wonderful sixty five inch UHD curved TV. That's my working space. And then okay, using Personas, um, uh, Tony and I bounce files back and forth either through 
uh, Dropbox or TeamViewer or anything like that. And um, we're able to just coordinate our stuff and transfer stems and file sessions that way. And okay, cool. I can rebuild the whole session on my side. So he can, he can do that on the same on his side. I track everything in my studio, all my bass stuff. I do a, a live mic track. I do a DI track. And then I send him those. And then we're able to update the files as needed. Wow. That would be cool. I mean, if you have the right, you know, the right uh, components, I guess, for lack of better terms, mm-hmm. that would make it a lot easier. Because I still, I'm recording stuff on my phone okay. at best, and I barely, barely figure that out. I've got GarageBand and all that stuff, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just, I'm the dumb bass player. Wow. You're the, <laughs> you've got to figure it out. We all, and, you know, and I also hide behind a lot of distortion and other noise, so, mm-hmm. you know. We all have our strengths. <laughs> I don't know if I have. <laughs> I can scream. It's still at my age. That's, I can scream. Okay. Well, let's get to the roots. When um, when did you get in the band? Because, you know, I've been working with Buck 09 since the inception, basically, mm-hmm. back in the early days. So when, um, when did you actually get into the band, and how did that happen? Okay. the, the My first show with them was Thanksgiving 1999, mm. and that was at Kane's. Okay. So, and how that came to be, um, I had tried out for the band. Um, originally, when I saw the ad in the reader, uh, there's there's a whole backstory to this. Another well, another reader. Yeah, another reader discovery, yeah. and um, it said bass player on it. I had known the guys prior to that from the other bands I was in, and even in my hometown, we had Bucko Nine there. We've had Blink there, and um, and actually, two of the guys that told me to recommend moving to San Diego were Tom and Mark. Oh really? From, from Blink and and I had a really good friend Sarah who also lived here as who and she, that was the main reason I came here. But for Tom and Mark to say, San Diego needs bass players and drummers, you know, as they're smoking a cigarette after a Blink show for my little hometown, and um, I looked at my brother and I was like, we really should try that out. We should really go down to San Diego. And so Harry moved down here. So anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I'm looking mm-hmm. in the reader, and it says bass player wanted for p- local punk ska band Bucko Nine, and I was like. Sweet, I'm gonna call that number. Yeah. So I call the number. It gets to some voicemail, and I hung up immediately. And I'm like, Nope, I'm gonna call Tony because I have his home. I have his personal number. So I call Tony, and I'm like, Hey, it's Andy from from Stinkaholic, and I uh, really like to try out for Bucko Nine. He goes, Get down here. So I go and I try out, and everybody was super stoked. Um, they let me stay for to watch some of the other people that were trying out, and um, um. It felt like they were going to take me at that time. Right. But then um, they discovered John Bell, who was just getting out of unwritten law. Right, right. So they said, hey, Andy, we're going to go with John Bell. He's got a lot of experience, all that good stuff. So, And I was like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I just kind of wrote it off and went back to work as I was here in San Diego. And um, So they were on their East Coast tour with John Bell out in Pennsylvania, I believe it was. And apparently John, John fainted on stage during sound check and everything. He was placid white and he had some kind of medical condition right and um as the guys were driving back from the east coast my phone rings and it's tony saying we're going to be in san diego in five days we have a 25 um we have 25 songs on our set list can you do this in five days i said (laughs) absolutely (laughs) it's like the old rollins never say no Mm -hmm. just say yes and then figure out it you know the logistics later mm-hmm. 25 songs in five days what are you already like you know i guess versed in some of the songs enough to 
Well, as an, a bass player, Scott was a major influence of mine when, when I would learn to mm-hmm. play a lot of, especially walking Scott bass lines and stuff. And yeah. Yeah, but I just uh, got in my garage and I just played the set every day for those five days. Yeah. And, um, and then I'm super nervous when I'm, I'm standing in front of that sold out crowd at Kane's. Right. And I believe it was their eighth anniversary at the time, which right now we're celebrating our 32nd anniversary. 32nd. So it was the eighth Holy one that I crap. played. And, um, we went up there and we nailed it, you know? Yeah. It was really nervous being in front of all their spouses and friends and, and then I could just feel the, the eyes on me. You know? Yeah. So, so. Yeah. Of course, especially anytime that you're the new guy, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just having eyes on you, you know, in particular is, can be nerve wracking, but when, you know, 25 songs I'm coming in, that, that would drive me up a wall. Was- but if, you know, sitting in and just working the songs for, you know, the good five days that you were allowed and you just came in flawlessly and, and was welcomed in. And then was, was there it, like a test period? Like, can you pull off this gig? And then if you pull it off or was it just like, no, you got the gig, let's do this. And then we're going to go. Yeah. That's pretty much was my induction right there. Wow. That's cool. And it was That's like, cool. Um, so we're going to do some more tours. We're going to do that, this and that. And like, do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Wow. I was on board. So. What what other things were you doing then? Did you have a day job that? Yeah, I worked in um, restaurants stuff. Okay. I was working at a, a restaurant in La Jolla up there, being a, a, a room captain's okay. a training server up there. So. Oh, okay. Food and beverage has always allowed me to move around. To have the flexibility to tour and, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty important if you go into a gig because they're already established and they have things lined up, so it's kind of thrown right in the hot seat, and then that's amazing. Yeah, and ever since I had moved to San Diego in '95, um, I was always playing in two or three bands at the same time while I was doing my job, while I was doing everything else. Just, oh, okay. Just looking for work, looking to get out and play. Okay, so you were looking for a permanent gig. Well, let's let's go to the roots. Let's do the dive, you know, the deep dive. And when did you get into, what inspired you with music? And then what inspired you to get on the bass? Um, I, I remember when I was a kid, um, my mom made me take acoustic guitar lessons. Mm-hmm. And, and I hated it. <laughs> I had another feeling. <laughs> I can relate. You know, I just, I just hate it. It, just, it felt comfortable, but everything felt uncomfortable at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I, I gave that up for a while. And then... Um, my younger brother Neil, he plays. Uh, he was starting to learn how to play guitar, and he was writing letters to f- from Stymie and and uh, Sub Society. Yeah, yeah. And, rest in peace. Uh, yeah, and and some of the guys and uh, like Chuck Trees and all that stuff as well. And uh, he started playing guitar, and I was like, "That looks really fun. I want to learn how to do something." I saw a bass in one of our local music shops, and I was like, "What's that?" Yeah. And I put it on, and I instantly connected with it. Yeah. And uh, it was this like lightning shape red bass. The, the most hideous instrument you could think of, and and the I most just metal. Yeah, it, it could have been. Right? It could have been. Could have been like yeah, rat or something like that. But yeah, yeah. But um, I just instantly fell in love with it, and I started playing it a lot. Yeah. Did you start off finger picking, or did you use an actual pick? Both. I had a guitar teacher for a while, for about a few months, just to teach me the roots and the basics and stuff. And then I was, I would show him the CD I had of Primus, mm-hmm. and I'm like. I want to learn something off this record. And he listens to it and he goes, yeah, Andy, I don't know what this guy's doing. <laughs> Les Claypool. Yeah. yeah. Les, Les is, um, I've, I've watched, um, 
something with him a while back, and um, I don't remember what exactly it came from, but it was just trying to figure out his picking. St- that's what it was. Something about his picking styles, and then just all the different techniques that he had. It was like if you pick one, you can kind of learn that. But he's got oh, it was a tutorial on slap bass because I play with a pick. And the only time that I'll finger pick is if I lose my pick and then I'll be able to carry it. And then I usually bloody my fingers and try to get a pick as quick as possible. But Les's techniques, there's so many different ones and then combine all those into one thing. But as a kid, hearing him, even me when you know I was younger trying to play the bass, it's like, this guy's like, this is incredible. You don't even need a guitar. You can just sit there and do what he does with even someone playing on a pot and pan and and you're you're done you're in that's it mm-hmm. you're hooked right the bass is you know an incredible instrument so what did you end up learning anything with any less riffs at all oh, or absolutely yeah? i ended up learning the whole album of um uh the first one with to uh to defy the laws of tradition and too many puppies all that stuff i I don't know why the title of it's escaping me right now, but um, through the seas of cheese or something. Oh, that was the next record, okay. And I started learning a lot of stuff off of there as well. Really, and then I traded in that old lightning bolt bass, and I got a Warwick, okay, something a little heavier, yeah. And it kind of had that growl and tone that, less, yeah, because like, there's no way I could afford a Carl Thompson at the time, yeah. But um, and what age were you when you're going through? What age were you when you first got your your metal base oh this was i would have been, probably been 19 oh okay like 18 or 19 yeah and then yeah just started progressing from there finished high school and then uh i had a rickenbacker also at the time and oh wow and as i was doing all the stuff we moved to san diego so okay so would that be uh nice. frizz frizzle fry fizzle fry yes there uh, we go yeah that was I, I knew how to play that record record front to back after a few months wow so you really just pick it up. Right. You and, just And after my guitar teacher was like he, he's like I don't know what that guy's doing and I was like okay well then we're done here. <laughs> Cuz I had got to that point to where I knew the scales, I knew what we were doing. Right. I want to learn all this other stuff, the slap pop, the finger picking, the the, the nail strumming, all that stuff. I yeah. I just went nuts into that. Really? Uh-huh. Did you ever do a band where you were doing some not, of that not like that kind of texture stuff i just that was like studies right like you know when you want to learn quantum physics and stuff that was when i was like okay i'm gonna press and play some primus yeah oh um, that's interesting yeah and then in my stack i also had red hot chili peppers blood uh sugar sex magic mm-hmm. um, i had some metallica albums pearl jam um that's all the stuff i kind of nirvana all that kind of stuff i just started diving into Okay, and then I was a big fan of the the skate punk stuff as well. Right. So Chuck Treese would send some messages through my brother and stuff, and he would send us like some demo cassette tapes, like the stuff he put on the Powell Peralta um, stuff. So it was yeah, like, really inspiring. He got us into that a lot of that Gallup punk. Yeah. So then I started finding bands like Lagwagon and all the Fat Records bands, and of course fell in love with all those bands. And did you skate? Uh huh. Yeah. Do you still skate? Uh, <laughs> at my own risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Measuring at my own risk, but um, yeah, my my brother and I we used to um chase pro skaters with the video camera and film them and put them in movies and stuff. So. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. 
I had no idea. Shout out to Chad Muska if he ever hears this. That he was one of my last clients I worked with. But um, and and down here when he was living in um, PB and all that. I think or? so. We were we were living in Tempe at the time and doing a bunch of work out there. And then, but we would drive to San Diego and shoot here, and then go back. Because Muska used to live out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so were you pals with him from back in the day when he was? He just started skating around with the crew that we were skating with, and. We were we were filming some guys. And stuff. I heard on the Nine Club. Shout out to that podcast. <laughs> um, he was talking about that, and now I think he had brought you up, even by name, because he was br- he brought up that crew. And the funny thing, because I listened to the Nine, I'm you know obviously I'm still really heavily into skateboarding, and um, you know Muska is kind of I mean it's the Muska. Mm-hmm. We have one of our. Um, one of the decks we have up in the bedroom is um, one of the ones that he did when he was on Element. So I've, and it's probably one of the most expensive skateboards we have in the vast collection we have. But that makes more sense as it's starting to come in because that was um, a time of the skate rock. And there was, I would say musically, it was more diverse and you weren't so pigeonholed in. So with your bass playing style and what you were coming up with, it was fairly diverse. Mm-hmm. So when did that transfer into where you started to get into ska? Um, well, up, up in the mountains, I was managing a family business up there, our bakery. And every time we were closing the restaurant, I would have Bucko Nine playing on the sound speakers. And okay. we get a lot of tourists and stuff. And sometimes people would be like, yeah, I'm from San Diego, Bucko Nine. You got it. That's rad. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of had it in my rotation with everything else. Yeah. I just love the energy. Yeah. And so, um, and then um, the the band my brother and I were in, Stinkaholic, uh, we had we were the local guys up in our little town. And so we we learned how to book bands, talk to like Eddie Numskull and talk to Muzio and stuff who were managing bands like Bucko Nine and, and some of the other ones that were managing Blink and stuff. And so we actually were able to get Blink up there a few times for just a few hundred bucks. And Bucko Nine would come up for a few hundred bucks. Skank and Pickle, um, all these bands, Good Riddance, uh, so many bands that came up to our little town. And and everybody just, um, we have the 650-person venue that just kept getting larger and larger. And until we, now we were selling out shows. Yeah. Now a 1,000 people are showing up to a 650-person venue. Now 1,200 yeah. people are showing up. So then the, the town was like, no more. That, that was all in Oakhurst? Yeah, that was all in Oakhurst. And you're you're doing you're promoting those shows, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my so. brother was doing most of that. My brother Neil was doing a lot of that stuff. I was driving him to get the insurance stuff, and I was he wasn't old enough. So to he, he was he was basically the talent buyer. Mm-hmm. And did you guys have to rent the venue out, or mm-hmm. how did that work? We had to rent the venue out, the security. Um, we had to have an ambulance standing by with paramedics and everything, just Damn. in case. You guys were like on top of it. Yeah. And then we'd walk away, you know, with a lot of money. We never had an ambulance standing up for us. No. (laughs) Even if one was called for whatever reason, they would just pass by. We didn't want them to to be there. No No cops, no ambulance. And after a few times, it's just our little town just started getting like, you know, 1,200 kids coming to see this punk rock show or ska show. Right. And it was a little too much for our little town at the time. Oh, I I can imagine. It was too much for this big town Mm -hmm. back when I started doing it down at Union. But we were in, you know, down in the the gut of downtown San Diego, so it made it a little bit easier, you know, out of sight, out of mind, sort of thing. 
But that that's really crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our lives are basically parallel. You got booking shows, working skateboarding. With, working with Eddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You're talking about Numbskull? Yep. Or, yep. Mm-hmm. That is, so shout out to Eddie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Get him to listen to the podcast. Yeah, I haven't, haven't seen Eddie in a year. Yeah, when I left the other day, he's promoting um, a Descendants show down at one of the local um, Tioga Sequoia breweries down there. So he's got the Descendants coming back. With oh, that's cool. He, he pretty much does uh, like Bakersfield, too, and mm-hmm. um, still does Ventura. Mm-hmm. He used to live in Camarillo, but I think he's out of the country now. Yeah, but still, still bringing in the, the legendary bands. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Which, Eddie, shout out to Habeas Corpus, which Eddie was in back in the day. Nice. So let's go back to, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, but there's so many parallels, and I've, I've got a ton of questions now, but I want to get back to, so you start working, you, you play the show at Kane's. Mm-hmm. How soon did you guys go back on the road or and start, you know, pushing forward now that you've got your new home? And did you, did well, you have... Hey, actually, you're... You're jumping ahead. Why don't we talk about Stinkaholic? Because you guys played Soma Metro. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we need to bring up that. Okay. Yeah. Um, we were having a great time playing Soma Metro, and that's where I met you guys, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when I first started getting a, a look at the scene, and then we started going to those New Year's Eve shows and stuff like that, and I'd see Buck 09 up there. And and a good friend of mine snuck backstage and was hanging out with Gwen you know, for the No Doubt show. And, yeah. um, you know, like we were just having a rad time with a, a big group of us that were from this little town. And there would be like 15 of us that would go to your new guys' New Year's Eve show or some of the, the Soma shows at Metro and um, had some of the best best times of our lives. Really? Yeah. So a bunch of, you got a group of people from Oakhurst that come down to the New Year's Eve shows at mm-hmm. the sports arena. Yeah. And, and you think about those shows too, nobody does that anymore. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the mix, other than, you know, like, these big festivals, but that's not the same vibe at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, the, it wasn't corporate. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's the ones that they have down here at the, the, the park down here, Bay park, whatever. We're actually going to the one next, next weekend when we're recording this. So the next weekend would be, what's that? The 11th, 12th. Um, that'll be the no effects, their farewell tour. But for, you know, where we were, I mean, I, I knew people would kind of come in from East County, maybe L.A., you know, drive down. When we were kids, we might, you know, get a caravan and people go up to L.A. But Oakhurst, that's that's a little bit more of a drive. Yeah, it's 350 miles from here. Yeah, so that's, you know. So you guys would get a hotel, like stay for a couple of days. And, mm-hmm. Well, actually, at that time, you were living down here, Yeah, right? some of us were living here, so they would bunk up. Our friends would bunk up with us, and, and we'd have, go have a killer time at, at the sports arena. You know. That's so crazy. And you were doing Stinkaholic. So who's who's in Stinkaholic, and when did you guys start that band? Um, my brother started it, and I think in 92, 93, up in the mountains there. Okay. It was kind of like his his and our response to very uh, bands that we love, like Operation Ivy, and, um, of course, a lot of the punk bands. So we were pulling that kind of thing for a while, and um, it was just a way for us to express ourselves. And, and yeah. we, we played a lot of backyard parties up there in the mountains and stuff where it's just people with baseball bats and they're swinging around the pit and stuff. And like just some really, really hardcore supervised stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of the eighties stuff, but mm-hmm. like even, you know, now there's kind of, there's some, there's a sewer shows and there's some other shows that are still kind of outdoors. And I hear there's, there's a few house parties going on, mm-hmm. but would you guys ever have a problem? Like, 
up there with any violence or anything? Was there like a skinhead problem like down here or? No, if, if there was, it was more in the Fresno area at times, okay. but our, our project didn't promote that. It just kind of got everybody excited and, you yeah, know, Fres- Fresno's always been pretty violent. Okay. Little city. Yeah. A lot of gang type stuff. That's crazy. Was there a lot of bands? Yeah. Up in your- yeah. Bands, um, right off the top of my head here. Uh, let's go bowling is from that area. Um, the crucified back in the day, the skate, one of the skate bands. Yeah. yeah. They're from the Fresno area. They were like that speed metal. Yeah. 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 I remember them. Mm-hmm. It might have something on vinyl in the archives. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But yeah. There'd be some, some pretty sketchy shows going on there, you know? Yeah. And this is of course back where no cell phones, no internet, you know? So. Right, right, right. Did you, did you guys do a, any Sacramento bands? Probably. I'm not, I don't really recall at this time if they were specifically from, specifically from Sacramento. We got a lot of stuff from the, from the Bay area. And uh, so that's where we were getting bands like Skank and Pickle. And we got, became really good friends with Mike Park at the time. And then so we were able to get our band on certain compilations with Buck 09 and with other things as well. So And that was with Stinkaholic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you guys were established. What, what, um, what happened to the band? Like, well, we just we did our thing down here in San Diego, and then I started getting really busy with Buck 09, and so it kind of just became a lesser priority thing. Right, right. And a couple of my guys, they were just had to work all the time, and finally I get into Buck 09, I'm doing the same thing, but we start traveling more, and so my, my time just got less available for that. Right, right. What were some of the shows you guys played at Metro? Do you remember who you played with? Gosh. Because you didn't play, you guys didn't play Union, right? You just played Metro. Just Metro, yeah. The Linda Vista, the Linda Vista one. Um, I'd have to look at some set lists, but uh, it was a lot of those like four or five band local local shows, you know? Side, side stage. Side stage shows, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think. I, I'm trying to remember some of the bands because I remember the, the name for sure. Um, and then in the group, I. Yeah, I remember the I, name. I remember seeing it on the flyers. Know, the neon color flyer. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to but th- I, I can't remember who you guys played with. That's the like uh, the one that keeps popping in my head right now is user friendly. Yeah, probably. Um, Tur- Turkey Malik. Yeah, that's Tur- exactly what I was thinking. Was Turkey think- Malik and probably Doctor Klon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you Jughead's Revenge. Okay, yeah. Was there was there Funkopotamus? Oh yeah, Funkopotamus. Uh, How about like uh, you know you get into. Uh, G spot, um, mm-hmm. unsteady, yeah, um, dodgeball at the time, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you guys use with Spaz Boy too? Spaz Boy, yeah. Oh, there you go. That sounds really familiar. Um, what's the other one? Skipjack, stuff like yeah. that. Um, yeah, I mean, man, it's just like trying to dig that far back in the memory bank. That's that's the thing too, because um, throughout to Chad, <laughs> yeah. It, speaking of, by the time he, if if he ever hears this, um, Chad, you were supposed to text me back there, brother. Um, but yeah, it's funny because talking about the '90s bands and what bands are still kind of around. Um, John, who's now in Beta Seven, he's been trying to do some things, and so we talked to Dodgeball. I. I send a message out to Skipjack and because Skipjack was going to start playing some shows again. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a lot of the 90s bands have either kind of matured and gone into different projects or it's just another one of those things as we get older, certain people just can't play anymore. Mm-hmm. Where Buck 09 has been around 
literally, you know, 32 years, right? And you've been in it for... Over 20. 23. That's, you know, that's impressive. And still playing, still recording. We've got two of the... Two vinyl in there, the the latest ones. Was it, Jerry? The, that was the, a live album. Yeah. And um, we got another more recent one because my wife's a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've actually turned on some other kids that we know onto the band. And so you've got quite the history. You go in from Stinkaholic and playing with like all the seminal 90s bands to playing with Bucko 09, which is an always headlining band. Mm-hmm. So you've been able to tour and all that. And, and how many albums have you been on with them now? With Bucko 9? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm on four, four or five now. Okay. Yeah. And still touring. Yeah. Well, like when I joined them in, in 99 into 2000, it wasn't till 2008 did we put out another record. Okay. So it was kind of waiting eight years. Yeah. And then between Sustain and Fundamental, it was 12 years. So in a almost in a 20 year period, we only did two records. And wh- why is that? Um, cause we're, um, I don't know. <laughs> Scattered. Is it, it takes us a while. <laughs> Every, everybody being pretty much far apart too. that, you know, everybody spread out. So in, in the two thousands, we all lived here in San Diego. So we just didn't really, I think after the the departure of Scott and John Bell, I think we uh, wanted to just kind of have fun for a while, right? And just play a bunch of cool shows, and that's what we did. We went to the UK. We were traveling a lot. Um, we were playing Warp tours. We were doing all those um, ska fests in in Vegas and stuff. Those big um, multiple band ska shows, and we were just we were just having a great time. And then I think it was around 2006. We were like. Let's um let's go ahead and wrap up all these new songs we've been working on, and like let's let's finally get in a record done. So. Yeah, and that's how we. That's how sustain was brought into. Uh, and you already had the material, or did you have to go in and write more material? Or well, like like with that song I played with when when we opened the show here, mm-hmm. that that was like one of the last entries. Oh wow! That okay, that we just needed like one or two more songs, and I just kind of pitched that one in there because I had showed Tony and, and the guys before, and they were like, "Yeah, that sounds like a great song," and then it just kind of got put on the back burner for a while. Right, and then we really woodshedded a lot of those songs, like so many times and John would drive down from LA. He was kind of living in LA at the time working with side one dummy. And, um, we were just able to put the work in and get that one done. But that was before remote, remote working and stuff. So now, right. now we're able to do it in the comfort of our own homes and our respective cities. And yeah, it makes it easier just to kind of, you know, get into it and, and feel the groove. Would you guys play these songs live at all? Or yeah. are you going to try them out well, before? We do. we do. I mean, there was one time um, when we released a fundamental. We were we were playing a show with uh, Tiari Dread at uh, the Music Box, mm-hmm. and um, we all talked about playing this new song we had called uh, um, "Don't Be Afraid," and we had never played it together. So that yeah. was our mission: was to play that song after learning how to do the remote recording process. That was our test. Right. We're going to play this one song that we wrote live at a show with zero practice. And and we we pulled it off. Great. That just gave me chills because I'd be so freaking nervous. Well, what, kind what of, year was that? That was, uh, gosh, probably 2016, 17, if I want to say so, at the music box. And um, but it kind of brought back that that new energy, right? You know, it wasn't like, okay, I'm just doing this again, you know, right? As maybe some of us do, and um, 
yeah, it was, it just was like, there was nervousness back. It was like, are you ready? Did you practice the line? Did you right, practice right. the line? Are you going to do it? Are you going to get that turnaround that we talked about? Okay, you got that? You got it? We're going to talk about it. Okay, let's go. It's kind of like lighting that little fire mm-hmm. and everyone just kind of that little confident. Challenging everybody. Right. And yeah. I, I document a lot of our, our live performances. So I, you know, for my personal thing and I, and I watched it back and I showed the guys and I was like, look how good, look how perfect we played this. This is how we can move forward with moving on. And if we have to move into different cities, this is how we do it and still do what we do. Right. But not be together. That's cool. That's really cool. It's just really changing with the times, like everything else. Right. Yeah. I mean, as we get older, we have to adapt to many different things. I mean, it's, you know, going back to just touring and having a, a job and being able to be in a band to be in a productive band and to be able to tour, to be able, you either have to make accommodations in your life and you have to have, you know, a home life that you can work with to be able to do that. Like when, you know, Jerry's going onto the road to work with you guys and to be able to go and do those tours, there's, you know, logistics. It's not like as kids. That's why I never went on the road. I had the club to run. That's all I did. So my bands always took second seat to everything. But then whenever I get a chance to go and do it, it'd just be like an onslaught of all this pinned up energy. And we might do a show and then not do a show for another year and a half to, or that might be it for the band. So being older and being able to find a way to function as a band, you've found all the ways to accommodate, you know, the different lifestyles. But this is a real test. How much time and logistics do you have to put in before you can get the band together for a tour? Is it like you get an offer and then you start gathering everyone together? And are you doing that? or uh, We have a booking agent, okay. Dave Romano, and he sends us offers. And then pretty much we send it to everybody in the band. And if everyone can do it, then we move forward with that. How long would that usually take? Say you get an offer, you know, a five-day tour and you're just going to do, you know, couple dates i'd say a few days just for all seven of us to get oh back. really mm-hmm. and you got to think to seven people so that's what i'm of, looking at because a I'm lot thinking, of hands that well, that's going to go through and one person can't do it then it throws every you know yeah throws and, it out. And, and to jerry's credit the eighth man yeah you know yeah exactly because <laughs> we're we really don't want to do much of anything without his help yeah and then plus there's the logistics of of getting the rv um, getting everyone in town, picking up everyone from the airport or whatever. I mean, there's, it's, what's, you what's, know. What's cool with Bucko 9, though, is everybody has their job, basically. Right. So one person, Dan, pretty much deals with the RV. He he has his contact oh, okay. over there. So everybody's doing their part to make the tour work. Right. Instead so. of just one person trying to, you know, corral everyone. Yeah, herd cats. That's yeah. Oh yeah, it's pretty much Jerry's lead job most of the time when he wants yeah. to get out of the venue. And I mean, because you guys I'm do the, have I'm a the sober guy on the road, so <laughs> yeah, I'm the exactly. One that has to take care of these guys. So and that's <laughs> you know, again, you're talking seven band members. So yeah, it's and you kind of known as a, it's <laughs> kind of a party band, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 not too bad. Well, not everyone. Some of us have got better, and some of us have got <laughs> a <little> worse <laughs> at it. But but yeah. The, um, I always try to help Jerry and like, come on guys, let's get, let's get this thing going. He's got to get to the next venue so he can rest and relax. And the guys just want to stand around and 
and party and hang out till three in the morning yeah. and we got to drive eight hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can drink in the freaking bus. Come on guys. I got to drive. Yeah. That that's all those logistics to me. I just still find absolutely just amazing. And so the party band with Jerry, you know, at the wheel because he's a sober one, you guys are doing your gigs and you know, the touring part. Now we've heard some stories about um, overseas from uh, Dan and Jeff. Yeah, they kind of spilled some beans on some stories. Mm-hmm. But let's hear from from your point of view. Okay. So um, let's see. So the uh, what was it? Japan? Mm-hmm. Is that what? What's is that the crazy spot where? I mean, because you guys are are big over in Japan. Huh. But what? Um, Help me on. I know there's some story. I'm trying to like pull him out of the air. There's uh, what were you? I, were you talking? You trying to talk about when Tony got his teeth knocked out? Or? That's what I was going to bring up right there. Yeah, there's the one. That's that's <laughs> one of them. Yeah. So yeah, we're um, Tokyo. We're finishing a show, and uh, Tony goes to move and do a spin move, but Dan is standing on his foot. That's right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So Dan stands on his foot, and Tony goes to lean forward, and he just goes face first with his trumpet into the wedge. And uh, just the mouthpiece just clips his teeth, just bam. And he's had like a little vampire. Yeah. And he, and he was just was bleeding, his mouth's all bleeding and stuff. And you got that on video too, right? Got it on video. And he's, he even tried to play the trumpet. He didn't even really notice what happened. And he was trying to play, watching in the, on the replay on the video. And he's trying to play and he's just like, I can't get the. And all of a sudden he just sees blood everywhere. And he's just like, he looks at Dan in the middle of the show and we're playing and he just like shows him his teeth and Dan's like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, your teeth are busted. <laughs> oh my And so I don't remember how do you pull it off on the rest of the, the, the show. That was it. That was the final. That was it. That was the final show to uh, close out Japan. And, and Tony just had to deal with all that all the way back home. And right. He was able to get fixed through the insurance and stuff. And yeah, but as it was, pretty wild i mean just like he couldn't eat really much of anything we had to go, we went to a sushi bar the promotion company took us out to a sushi bar afterward and we're doing wasabi rolls and all that stuff and, and tony open like, nerves yeah he, he's got his teeth like just if you can imagine just anything touching the front of your teeth like just setting nerves off on fire oh yeah that's what he had to deal with and he's trying to eat through the side of his mouth and it was it was hilarious and and kind of like you know we we're felt for him at the same time right but, yeah. Well, there was a, and then Andy got injured in uh, Chicago, mm-hmm. Tinley Park. I was setting up some cameras and I s- stepped into the darkness off stage and my f- leg got caught in the raft or the, the scaffolding. Right. And I got pinched. And the only thing that saved my fall was the, the rack for the guitar rack, like uh, MXPX's bass was up there. Zebra head stuff is up there. Like all their stuff is on this rack and I am holding on to it and it's not bolted down, but but I had to keep it from falling down. Otherwise my, the weight of my, my body and everything would have broke my leg. Yeah. And I was able to pull myself up and get myself. And I just had this huge hematoma, like by the end of our set, that was just, it was constantly growing. It was gnarly. It was bad. Really bad. Really. Yeah. And he still had the, he's, he had to play a whole set and then another set that night Mm -hmm. at Reggie's in downtown Chicago. Oh, Wow. Yeah. ibuprofen and, and ice we, pack. And then and on top of that, we had no sleep. No sleep. And then the next day we had to go to O'Hare and get, and fly out of there. And everybody else had an earlier flight. And so I'm just sitting in O'Hare for like nine or ten hours. 
waiting to get back in the air and just my leg is just with every heartbeat it's just throbbing so it's your leg and not your foot yeah with my yeah like right on the side of your leg and just um and it's swollen it just hurts really bad oh <laughs> my god and see you weren't even skating and it's just from on stage. stage yeah just from being on stage and not and not really yeah it, it was bad it was bad it yeah. sounds i mean right now my leg hurts thinking about it <laughs> you know yeah it was probably the most scariest moment i've ever had on stage it was, yeah it was that particular moment was like because if i would have fell and broke my leg it's over right yeah i'm staying in a hospital i'm getting my leg in a cast the guys are taking off without me right like it really would have caused problems in my getting back to work and doing more shows eventually and all that stuff it would have really put a it's a good thing that didn't happen in denver yeah well, at any anywhere even in chicago but i mean <laughs> i mean because that was the start of that run mm-hmm. oh other than i think we did the soda bar then did we do the soda bar the night before or I can't remember. We played over there so many times. Yeah. Um, I just remember playing at the Blueberg there in Denver. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we, we did that. Omaha. Yep. And then Chicago. Chicago. Twice. Actually, we stopped in for two hours in Iowa to sleep. Right. For two hours. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> just to take a nap. That was horrible. <laughs> I mean, poor Jerry. He's, he's a champion driver. You know? Well, I know. I mean, he drives down here to do the podcast. That's why when I explain to people about scheduling... And I said, oh, no, well, can next week work? Mm-hmm. No, because as I told you before, Jerry has to come down. Mm-hmm. I have the luxury. It's in my living room. I just, you know, tell the family we're screwed over the weekend. You guys have to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's logistics that have to work out. And that's one of the things that for me, because I've never really been on the road. I mean, I, the only time that we did anything was early, early days. I don't even remember what year it was. It's either 88 or 89. It was probably, it was probably 89, maybe even 90, but um, short-lived did, um, they had a gig up at Gilman Street. So we went, we took three days, we got a U-Haul and then um, the guitarist Dennis drove his van and we had Justin from the Locust and Dead Cross and at that time he was still doing Struggle and I believe Eric from Struggle, who's also in a bunch of other bands, Rest in Peace. I believe he went with us. And um, then I went, and it was a short-lived guys. So it was like three days. And that for me, that's touring. And when we came back, I ended up a chip tooth, needed a root canal, because I was eating Taco Bell, and it fucked up my tooth. And, you know, that was just after three days, and I was just miserable. So being on tour where you know, you know, you're you're where no one knows where you're at, you know, basically in the band and you're touring something like that happens and you have to just deal with an injury. That's that's my biggest fear. That's why I don't want to tour. I mean, the tooth damn near took me out. Mm-hmm. But if your leg feels like it was just in a vice and, you know, to the point of almost broken and you're on a couple hours sleep. I mean, come on. It's is it really that worth it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we do it <laughs> yeah and it's, it's it's cool to go out and hang out with everybody you know like these, these guys they don't see each other that often and yeah it's it's you know it's the brotherhood just hanging and that's why i do it too the hang out and it's it's fun i mean it's rough it's definitely rough you have to really love it um it's kind of like what i tell anybody else when you're doing something you love doing it's a lot of work so if you don't love it that's going to show itself 
real soon. Right. Well, especially if if your heart isn't into it and you're on the road. I mean, and all the bands that have come through all the years playing the club, there's been bands that have come through, and you could just tell that they're tired of being on the road. Tony, and when it might, you know, the things that sticks in my mind when Tony from No Doubt came back, it was they were out for what thirteen months, I believe. You know, we've talked about this before, but before that tour, he's just like, I just want to go on the road because on the road it was easier just to. You know, basically, their album had just come out. Gwen and him, right? They, they were they were working. That's what it was. You know, they, yeah. That's why bands want to be on the road back in those days when you did tour all the time because that was your job. Yeah. Nowadays, it's not your job. So the idle time, you know, especially when you're in a, a weird relationship where you've got this band, you got you're on the label, you've been picked up. You're extremely passionate about it. this is your goal. Do you want to be doing this? So they went on the road. They come back, I believe it was 13 months later. And I asked him how it was because at first he's like, I just want to go on the road, Jeremy. I just want to work, you know? Mm-hmm. And then he's like, Yeah, dude, I just want to go home. <laughs> you know, holidays, birthdays, every day mm-hmm. is has been on the road. And I just want to go home. Granted, they've been all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, but if your passion isn't in that and into your music and into your product and it's your lifestyle, it's going to show on stage. Yeah. And those are the people that are paying for you to be able to do that. So if you're up on stage and you're just phoning it in, Mm -hmm. the audience is going to know. Right. They're not going to buy your merch. They're not going to buy your records. They're going to get burnt out. They're not going to come to your shows. So you have to. It takes a certain type of person to be on the road that much. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to, you got to, it, it's family. It's basically, mm-hmm. or basically a, a marriage in a sense, because everybody's got to get along. If you don't get along, it ain't going to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work at all. I, that's the one thing that I always found curious because back in the day, um, Deadbolt had asked me whether or not I'd be interested in going on a European tour and doing bass for him. And Granny was at a bar and we were all wasted. And I just told Harley, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll get back to you. I thought about it, and I actually asked my friend Miriam about it. I said, you know, what do you think? And she's like, well, I don't know. And I just, by the time I got back to him, he had already found someone. But I was just thinking, because, you know, I, all I've done was three days with the boys going up to Gilman, and that was crazy. Come back, and I get this, I need a root canal. My tooth hurts. In Europe with Deadbolt? I think there'd be a lot of drinking, a lot of partying going on. So you got to find that balance. And if you're not comfortable, even on the onset with a band, it has to be family or else you're just, you know, that's how bands break up on the road. That's how a lot of problems happen. Have you ever had those insecurities? Like, we're going to go on the road. We're going to be out for so long. And it seems like you're always just the consummate, just like professional about it. I think I think all of us really embrace the idea of cherishing what we're doing, you know? Okay. And I see it as a real privilege when I'm on the road. Is it long hours, a lot of downtime? Yes, absolutely it is. But I embrace all of that. It's just part of the, part of the gig. Part, I mean, just like with anything else, it didn't matter if you're working for a job somewhere else, you still have to travel. You still have to, so you better love it. And, right. And for that 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes that we get on stage to do it, that's your opportunity to let it all out. Right. Whether it be your frustration or your pleasure or your exercise, whatever it is. Yeah. Shoot it out. 
shoot it right up at the crowd and hopefully they give it right back to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And have, that's a good question. Has there ever been a show where you just kind of thought we're bombing, this is not working out or the crowd just wasn't really into it or, or nobody shows up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we all have the same philosophy. If there's five people or 500 or 5,000, we're going to make every single person there have a great time. There'll be certain people that Tony or myself or any one of us will pick out just to see if they're like, they got their arms folded and they're just right. kind of like, well, like, like, uh, the Hollywood show mm-hmm. where 25 people showed up. Right. And there was like 12 bands playing and these weren't little bands. Right. That was that big festival, right? Yeah. With gutter mouth and pulley and yeah. U.S. bombs. Yeah. U.S. bombs. And it was like 25 paid. Pretty yeah. much most of the people in that room that were watching the bands were from other bands. Mm-hmm. It was it was bad. I mean, it was a good show, but all of us got but up it there. Was, and it was bad. Yeah, we all went up there and did our thing. Because the thing that was odd is right. we, we thought that was going to be the biggest show of that run. Mm-hmm. And the, actually, the the best show of that run was in my town in in uh, Ventura at the Garage. Yeah. Sold out. Every it, the house was just amazing. All the bands just it was it was a good show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that Hollywood one was horrible. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was sterile. I think we made what twenty five dollars in merch or something something. like that. Yeah, but but we just everybody there did their thing. Yeah, and then we all yeah even (laughs) even Guttermouth at two in the morning put on a pretty damn good show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah, Mark's always hilarious. You know. (laughs) Oh, that's that's true. That's absolutely true. But it's still. How do you keep morale up if you know when people get sick or there's hardly anyone there? Is it just matter you just because all the other bands are there? Yeah, I mean, if if anyone any one of us is not feeling tip top, just being around each other and stoking each other out, I think that's how we get through it all. I mean, yeah, no one's like you know, no one gets treated like that. It's just like, come on up, have a beer, you know, we'll get you brought up. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because these are these are the things that I think about, and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, God, I don't know how, you know, after so many years, you can keep up the morale, especially being on road. Mm-hmm. But it just, it sounds like you just have the perfect attitude and it's just the professionalism. Well, and again, I think it's everybody being spread out too. Yeah. So they're not seeing every, you know, they're not seeing each other every day. I mean, of course, now there's four guys that live in San Diego, right? Right. From the van, mm-hmm. but they're still kind of, that group of people was kind of spread out too. Right. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's well, Dan hangs out with, with Jeff a lot. Yeah. So you kind of have your own clicks, but that's the thing that I get excited about whenever I have band practice with whatever project I'm doing is getting together and making a whole bunch of noise. And before it'd be like, you know, when you go and get a studio, so you have two hours that, you know, you scrounge up enough time for two hours, you go into the studio. And so you just have to go in there and power it out, try to be as professional. But if you're all living around each other, then you get so comfortable that you just start, you know, you're just hanging out, partying, you're not as productive, mm-hmm. but you guys are spread apart. So then when you get back together and you're out on the road, that's the party time and that's the productive time. Mm-hmm. I think all of the stuff we do remotely together, it's like when we get together and, and finally listen to this stuff together, that's mm-hmm. the first time. Yeah. So if you, if you remember getting together with your bandmates and hearing that music for the first time, you're all reacting to it. It's really enhanced when you've been working on stuff for so long, and then you guys get a chance to get together and listen to the, fir- the final product for the first time. 
Yeah. All together. And then you can actually see reactions. Yeah, it's a different dynamic for sure. Right. And being on the road, I, I, I'm as a cinematographer, um, I just love documenting and filming and doing all this stuff. And because I know it's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I find peace in, in making these documentary videos. So I have something to reflect on later and relive the, the touring again. The historian right. of the band. The what? The, the historian. historian of the band. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Are you doing anything with that? Are you putting together, like, is there a YouTube or anything that you're... Are um, you just stocking footage right now? I, I make episodes of each tour. So, okay. And I put in as much detail as I can, Easter eggs, stuff that, like, maybe the guys... Maybe there's a song we were working on, and I, I put it in there, or a little commercial. We send each other funny videos, and... He, he does um, really good uh, videos that he puts together, because, like, he just got me... Since I started touring with them, he got me all the, the footage from the the tours I, I was on with them, mm-hmm. and he'll okay. put in like, where we start, the time it took to get there, mm-hmm. and then some scenery, so uh, little tidbits of everything, which is cool. Which th- that alone it adds to giving being on the road even more purpose because you've got other projects or art endeavors for lack of better terms to do to keep you occupied right versus you know just someone that's on the road and they're waiting to get to the next gig maybe do a couple interviews Mm -hmm. which we'll get to that in a minute but when did you start touring with them jerry um i i actually was doing stuff with the suicide machines and then i saw these guys and i'm like guys don't have any help what the hell so they were all doing. Everybody was taking turns doing merch, driving, right, whatever. Right. I'm like, that that's that can't be that fun. So I I hopped on with them around. What what year like, was this? Actually, I saw them. Oh, we did we did two shows at the House of Blues, Suicide Machines, um, with Goldfinger, and was it sub- uh, Suburban Heroes or whatever that? Yeah, was. I think that's the Anaheim. Yeah, yeah. So we did we did uh we did Anaheim and San Diego. Suburban Legends. Suburban Legends. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> we got you. We corrected it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt bad for all men. I'm like, I'll, you know, if you guys want me to help, I'll, I'll I'll go out with you guys. And what year was this? So we the first time I went out with them was January of 2019. But, but I kind of helped them back in 2018. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't too long ago. No. And then, I, you know, I have that history with everybody from Soma as well. So Oh, yeah. Just like you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but again, I never went on the road. Yeah, I'm, I'm you well, know, you gotta remember, I, I started tour managing when Metro closed. Yeah, so I that's in kind of in my blood. It's like I, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing too is with him being on the road with you guys and the fact that he is, you know, again, just one of those just disciplined and he can drive all those hours. You've, you know, working on documenting. Um, he's also carrying, you know, the merch, but I know that you're involved with that as well. So when you guys are at sound, this is one question I always like to find out about when you guys are doing sound checks, do you go in and play a song that you're going to be playing on the set or do you work on new material and work on material kind of on the road? Um, I wish we worked on new material during sound checks and stuff, but no, it's usually, it's just play the standard song that we play which yeah. is usually like round kid or just like just like at the club you know dial it in mm-hmm. yeah get the marks and get off the stage right if, if there's a line of other artists that are waiting to get their sound check in we just get up there do the stock 
get get the job done and get off the stage. Because it's, yeah. it's still the same concept where you do the headliner and you do the opener. and Yeah. It. Yeah, but you guys are usually a headliner, aren't you? Sometimes, yeah. If, if we have the extra time, we'll run through two or three songs, and hopefully we can run through something new. And you guys did that on the last run we did. Yeah, at the amphitheater, I remember we had like a good 10, 20 minutes to just yeah, jam out you guys some did, stuff. And, yeah. Didn't you guys do like three songs? Yeah, something like that. At Garden Grove, which is the next show? Yeah, on next, July, next July 8th. Yeah. Or not, not two months from now. Yeah, the, the Gutterfest show at uh, the Golden uh, the Garden, Garden, Amphitheater. Garden Amphitheater. Yeah, Garden okay. Grove. Garden Grove. It's like with gutter mouth. Yeah, you got JFA on there. Also. Oh, really? Yeah, uh-huh. Jughead's Revenge. Jughead's is on there. Stalag Thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, Chaser. I'm really excited to see the band Chaser. Um, that's been one of my. It's like it's like two stages, right? Yeah. I wonder how that's going to work. I think they're going to do that inside stage and the outside stage. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, and then it might it might be alternating. So. Is this a one-off gig or is this part of a tour? One-off, one-off. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. I'm to see bands like JFA, like back in my old yeah. days. You know, it's like that's going to be a real treat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, that goes back to the roots of skateboarding. And the one thing that I'm finding just amazing is because I never talked about skateboarding when I was at the club. It's just I've always skateboarded, mm-hmm. but it never, I never really realized how it went. You know, when basically when I was younger, skate rock was a big thing. Mm -hmm. And then once I started doing the club, it was just all about music. So skateboarding was to me, it's just, you know, it's like art. It's just something I did. But now so many bands have been either influenced from the skate rock albums or just skateboarding in itself Mm -hmm. that it's able to kind of tie another one of those knots and bring the whole scene together. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just one more of those things that make these festivals and everything a lot more fun. So the Warp Tour that really started promoting that, did you guys do any Warp Tour shows? A lot of them, yeah. Did you ever get tempted to go and skate at all? Yes. Yeah? Would you? Because this is one of those main things that a lot of people talk about is, okay, so you're on the road, and depending on your label and your management, they might be like, you know, you're not freaking bringing a goddamn skateboard because if something happens to you. As a matter of fact, you're too valuable. Just, you know, we're going to keep an eye on you. We don't want you partying too late or whatever. Were there any restrictions that you guys had? Nothing like that contractual wise. Um, but there was a couple warp tour seasons where I did bring my skateboard just to yeah. get around the venue a lot faster. And, um, yeah, I have I have some old footage of that stuff too. Tony and I skateboarding through garage down garages and yeah. stuff like that because like warp tours close off the whole area, right? So right, we would find these uh, garages that were blocked off, and we would just be able to skate down the parking them. garages. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the old classic parking garages. And- do you remember what years you guys? Which what years you guys played on the warp tour? The mid two thousands, a lot. Like sometimes they were just one offs, and sometimes we were doing like whole West Coasts. Um, stuff like that. Okay. California ones. And I, I remember bad being on the tour on the road with bad religion and Coheed and Cambria and, and tiger army and stuff. And oh, wow. Getting to watch those, those bands every day. Yeah. You know, from like the top of the, the RV, just like, Oh, sweet. So it's, it's pretty epic. You know? Yeah. No, that sounds really cool. It's crazy. how just, you know, a local band got to that point of, being able to have all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. So there's a warp tour. What other, did you slide in on the Ozfest? <laughs> no, we never played anything like that. Or, I mean, but, uh, they had these, um, I'm trying to remember. There was one year where, uh, I think it was 
is 90 either 99 or 2001 where it was skating with the devil so it was warp tour and ozfest came together oh some, wow some state that happened wow so the both festivals merged mm-hmm. what about Lollapalooza? or uh we don't i don't think we've ever played anything like that but there's always been these beer uh food skate fest something like those little functions going on in certain towns and supernova Supernova, yeah. Oh, that was, that was a beer festival. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah. um, anytime I've been in town and I see here or see about a skate festival going on, I'm like, later, guys. Yeah. I'll, just tell me when I have to be at the, the venue. And then all of a sudden, I'm hanging out with Steve Cab and Tony Alva and Hasoy. And I'm just like, yes, can you sign? I, in my, my room in my house, I have all these skate decks signed by like a lot of guys. That's rad. Yeah. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Big yeah, he's fan. got them hanging on the walls. Mm-hmm. See, that's, so this is just like an extension of your bedroom, basically. Oh, I'm, I, yeah, I but feel, it's all a bunch of my art. <laughs> right. I feel super comfortable here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's that's the whole thing that, especially in season three, I think for me, as finding the uh, common ground with skateboarding mm-hmm. and music was was pretty pretty incredible revelation. Oh yeah, back, back for me the... because I didn't realize how many people skated. Right. You know, because I'm I'm one. If I hear someone outside i could literally be inside just watching tv and i'll hear what the hell and you know i have that curb out there that i had made because no one really knows about the bowl that i have here in my front yard but um and then the curb over there is you know a nice curb cut it's a tall one so people would skate that and i've had people filming out here and i'll go out and i'll watch them and then you know kind of introduce myself i you know, I'm always the old creepy guy with a lot of these 20 something year olds. And I used to, um, well, God, we sponsored a lot of people mm-hmm. over the years. So I'd end up going out there and talking to them. And they're like, Oh, you skate? And I go, Yeah, Red Rum Skates. Oh, that's you? Mm. It's like, Yeah, that is me. You've heard of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, with that and all the festivals, how now it doesn't seem like there's as many skate stuff going on they've kind of simplified it and now they're bringing in the beer gardens mm-hmm. um food and all that the brewery shows yeah mm-hmm. is that something that you're finding now is there's a lot more brewery sort of yeah i don't know if it's just festivals for, for or... whatever reason yeah i mean ever since warp tour went out it's all the skate stuff is not as prevalent and we in... did a lot of we did a handful of x games too oh okay stuff like that Oh wow! I had no idea. That was pretty rad. Like walking to the cafeteria, and like there's, I don't know, like there's Colin McKay, and yeah, <laughs> like wow. So yeah. being on the road, you're also, you know, you can be a fan of of what's going on, mm-hmm. which makes being on the road that much more exciting. Meeting the people that inspired me to pick up the bass, mm-hmm. and and whether they were in this band or that band, I mean. That's been one of the most rewarding things is, is meeting the people that influenced me to, to do what I'm doing. And that they play a part in why I'm there meeting them in the first place or where I'm, wherever I'm, we're at. Do you ever do any sit down just in, in an RV somewhere and jam with any of the people that you looked up to growing up on um, tour? Or? Not the jam part, but, um, but like having conversations with Matt Freeman, mm-hmm. you know, when we're in Tucson or El Paso. And uh, 
we're, we're just talking about stuff that's not even about related to the band. Like, you know, just, just what do you do for a hobby? And I ride motorcycles. Oh, that's cool. And we just, we're able to have like real conversations that really don't have to do with playing bass or music, but, right. and I just really get to learn more about the, the, the guys that inspired me, the guys yeah. and gals that inspired me. Yeah. Who would be the one that you got to hang out with that you're just like, I cannot believe I'm sitting here right now. Pinch myself. The the two Matts, Matt, Matt Riddle and Matt Freeman. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the ones that like, they influenced my playing in a big way. Riddle's from face to face and then, right? No, no use for a name. Oh, yeah. My. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, He's Matt, a bad man. Matt played several times at Metro. Many times at yeah. Metro. And Yeah. Well, I, I knew him because I started booking face to face when they were basically coming up uh, yeah mm -hmm. so matt and rob and trevor and i yeah we we kind of i've told this story before but when they would pull up at um when we were downtown so they would pull up and you know i'd come out to meet like i did everyone and um back then it was really low-key and we were all really young but um we had a thing where either matt or myself flick a quarter or whatever we have on us up in the air and then Trevor would kind of be a little standoffish, like I'm not going to get in the mix, but would be laughing his freaking head off as one of us, either Rob, Matt, or I would try to get the quarter first. And then it was just, you know, you got the visual, mm -hmm. the dog pile, mm -hmm. you know, someone was always at the bottom. <laughs> just, I remember the days when they would just drive in with their personal vehicles and park in the back of Metro. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with these... Back then, they usually had a van, and the one thing that I I would ask them about being on the road because you know they've been they're already from Victorville, mm -hmm. but as you head out towards Texas, there's places that are road stops, and you're just on the road, and you probably recall this. You're just driving, both of you. You're driving, and then all of a sudden, there's kind of one of those Adobe bathrooms, and then rest area, yeah, and a couple we, we park pull benches. Those many many times, mm -hmm. yes. I remember those from being a little kid because we would drive from here out to Texas where my my dad's family lived. So I would ask them, you know, roadside tables. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I could relate. And then we just you know started forming a, a friendship from there. But Matt's he's oh God, even thinking about him right now. He just he's he's incredible. Mm -hmm. Amazing bass player. Right. I mean, just ridiculous. And it just his persona on stage. And I could just imagine the three of you guys. I would I would like to be a fly in the wall just because, you know, I've, I've known Matt for years from playing the club with Rancid as well. Mm -hmm. But to see the three of you guys just sitting there. I would be beside myself. <laughs> that's, you know, that's fun stuff. Right. I mean, yeah, those two guys influenced, I mean, 95% of my playing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, did you want to play something from Stink Stinkaholic? I can, if you guys want me to. Oh, yeah, yeah. That'd, that'd be great. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hook, see those guys on the road again at some point, you know. Is there anything coming up where you might run into them again? I hope so. <laughs> anything in the books that we're looking forward nothing, to? Or? Nothing right we did, away. We did see Trevor in Chicago. Oh, did we? Okay, I, I missed him. Is he was, doing his he acoustic was, thing, or no? He, I don't know what he was doing, but he was pretty much to himself. But I, I did see him there. Yeah, I actually just reached out to him through Facebook. Mm -hmm. Just recently, we queued up and ready to go. Yeah, let's do it. So, so this one's called uh, "Out to Get Me" from Melee album. Here we go.
goes I feel like other fights Cause I'm right my penis blows If you're not important Fingers everywhere I look I always live my life the same But I feel just like a cook is ridiculous that's That's so good fit into buckle nine so nice and neatly oh yeah yeah (laughs) no i could totally hear i mean when it it sounded like it was probably uh uh, the oh my god e E chord Mm. the little accents that you throw in when you're playing for me being a bass player just that one e i'm like oh oh yeah that fits Mm -hmm. but it adds that texture and that's, you know, being a bass player, that's what we have to do. We have to not only be the bass of of the music, but the drummer, the foundation, but to be able to walk around like that. That's, it's, so how old were you when you wrote this? So I can, because uh, I kind of have a... I'd probably be 24. Oh, okay. Ish, like that. I wasn't, it wasn't until 26 when I joined Buck 09. Okay. So, but yeah, that's, that's what my brother and I were doing a lot back in the day. And we probably played that at... at uh, at Union Station over there. It yeah. sounds really Metro. familiar. Metro, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, we played that song many times side stage over there at, at Soma. That sounds really familiar. Yeah. And people refer to us as a, a fun, goofy version of Operation Ivy. Yeah. Yeah, I could hear that influence of that. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. Uh, ba- back then, Neil, I think, would write Tim, and Tim would send him letters back. And Neil was very pen pal kind of, kind yeah, of guy, yeah, yeah. so... He would write Chuck Treese. He would write all these other guys. And so, um, yeah, uh, Rancid, Operation Ivy was a big influence. And Matt, Matt Freeman, of course, on on my playing yeah. from day one. Which, again, that's, you know, Matt's not your traditional player either. I mean, he's he's talented. And he'll, he'll walk all over the place. Because, you know, especially for a lot of bass players when they're younger, either it's finger picking or or using a pick kind of stay in their own lane for lack of better terms, you know, and just kind of follow the guitar and just, you know, just keep that going. But 
you have that style where you're just walking all over the place. So you're adding all that extra texture. Was there ever a time where you just kind of played the notes and kept it three chord or? It really depends on what the song is asking for. Um, I'm, I'm one of those players that I'll play it 10 different ways Mm -hmm. and then find five different ways, three different ways, two, and then one. That's exactly what I was getting at, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm finding myself doing that now as well. You don't use any pedals or anything, do you? Not even a. I use a light compre- um, MXR compressor pedal. That's about it. Okay. No, no effects or anything like that. Okay. And what is your rig? Just to geek out. Let's. Okay. Let's what do you, you know? The whole setup: your main bass, and then do you have a you know a secondary bass? Mm-hmm. I I have two wonderful Stingrays from the Ernie Ball Company. Mm-hmm. My reps have helped me find both of them. Um, I, I've always loved the Stingray brand ever since um, Flea in the early 90s with Chili Peppers and stuff. And, right. Um, I did have some conversations with Fender and some others, but the Ernie Ball brand just seemed to pull me in. And 2006, they gave me my first endorsement, and I was able to walk into any any shop and pick whatever Ernie Ball instrument they had. And so I got this really nice limited edition 2006 Stingray. Nice. I played that one for until until a couple of years ago. It was my main my main rig for um, playing shows all over the world. It was really great. And then my rep Robert at Ernie Ball, shout, shout out to Robert. Um, he helped me find the Stealth, the two humbuckers, and it's all black. Yeah, it's a limited edition black one, and there was only one in the United States. He helped me find. And uh, that's that's my wow. my main one I play now. That's what, that's what I was playing at the fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful bass. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. What string? What string size do you use? And what round? What wound? Uh, I just use the the pink packs, the 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 Ernie Ball Slinkies, the pink mm-hmm. pack. I think it's one oh five through forty five. Yeah. If I'm if I'm thinking right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I have one bass. I it's a cheap Chinese bass that I wanted just to have a backup because I don't really have a backup at this point. My PV is beyond repair. At least for me, mm-hmm. but um, so it's got the medium wound, and it's brighter, and it just the way that I play sometimes is you know with all the distortion and everything it, it works, but I like the one hundred and five for the E string, mm-hmm. and that's kind of been my thing. And I was uh, playing, uh, what is it, blue steel mm-hmm. for a while, and because of Jim Cherry, mm-hmm. he gave me some packs back and rest in peace, Jim. Um, and I just love those strings, but now I'm just sticking with the Diodarios because they're easy to find. Even if my wife's out and sees them somewhere, she'll just pick them up mm-hmm. because, you know, realistically, if it works, why well, mess with it? Right. You know, so, um, and then play with it. Actually, the bass I still play is the one I got from Jerry mm-hmm. years and years ago. And didn't I trade that for something or some symbols? Okay. Yeah. Nice. And it's an Ivanez mm-hmm. Silver Cadet, and I I beat that thing to to the Dickens. What um? What's your bass rig that you you play through? Uh, for for thirty years, I've had a PV cabinet, mm-hmm. which the first year I replaced the speakers in it and the Eminescent speakers, and um, that's been my main two fifteen speakers. I've I've been playing that for thirty years. I found it right out of high school, and um, I, I've never changed my cabinet. And again, it's just, it works, so why even... Right, and it did come with a PV tube head. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably maybe 500 watts at the time, but a big old monster thing. And 
I think somewhere around um, 98, 99, it started, the tube started going out. Yeah. And I was, I was really frustrated with that. So I went to Carvin up in Temecula mm-hmm. and I went to the factory there and I said, Hey, I, I just got in this band called Buck 09. I need something that's going to be like work on the road. If I was to throw it off of a truck, right. I still need it to work. Yeah. They were like, Oh, we got this brand new solid state thousand yeah. watt. I was like, sweet sign me up i'm i'm all about that so and then i was using that for 20 years and okay so i just retired that one after cleaning it out um on that last tour we just did with jerry and us and um we uh, i brought two heads i brought a brand new um ampeg 500 watt mm-hmm. that because i was providing the back line for for both mustard plug and omnigon for, for everybody for everybody so three bands my rig is going the whole getting, the whole tour yeah. 10 10 shows yeah Wow. All three bands are playing my gear. So same with the, the drum kit. They're playing Steve's drums. Um, yeah, everybody's Jonas using using our stuff. Mm-hmm. So. so I brought two bass heads. I, I, I cleaned out my original Carvin 1,000-watt head for mainly for Omnigon and Mustard Plug to probably use. And then I had my my 500-watt Ampeg that I just was able to switch back and forth. So at least I had a guarantee of backup. Right. Both both heads performed beautifully. The whole thing. I didn't didn't have one single problem. Yeah. Do you like the solid state or do you like tube? I I like the knowing that those tubes don't need any warming up. They don't need anything. It's just I go direct and I'm using a compressor, so I've got the tone I want right from the from switching it on. But I like the reliability of solid state. That's to be honest. That's where I'm at. I've I want to go through an orange, mm-hmm. but then again, I also want to get like one of those uh, crate eight by eights. Um, but it's just mainly to add more cause I want to run a just dirty channel and then I want to run a clean channel and I just want to be as loud as possible. I want Lenny to rise from the grave and go, what the hell is that noise? And then go, Oh, that's a bass. And then go back underground and rest <laughs> in peace. Right. Cause I want it to be so loud. And I've actually been messing with, with my uh, adjustments to try to get a different tone because I didn't change literally changed any adjustments on what I've been playing for over 25 years. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that just, again, it works as far as my equipment. I have the GK head, same cabinet to, um, it's a great cabinet to 18 inch JBLs. But then again, I haven't taken that on the road, mm-hmm. you know, and I've only, I played a few select shows, but I haven't, played, I mean, one tour of yours is more than what I've played in 10 years, wow. you know? So, I like it. I'm just kind of nervous about having to start playing out more. And it's um, when you tour and play in different venues, you'd be super surprised about how your, your gear sounds really different. Oh yeah. From venue to venue. Oh yeah. It's especially outdoors. mm -hmm. But with bass, you can just, as long since you're just running clean, Mm -hmm. you can just go straight direct input into the board. I could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As long as you have decent monitors. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get a good stage sound. Has has that ever been a problem where... There was one time in the UK, um, the bass amp wasn't working for some reason, and I just plugged directly into the board, and I just heard the bass coming out of the floor. Oh. But nothing on stage. No. So the guys are like, Andy, are you even playing? And I'm like... So it was all front of house? Yeah, it was all... Fr- you can only hear the bass front of house. You could not hear it on stage. They didn't have a drum monitor at all? Or? No, there wasn't. It was nothing. It was only coming out. So oh my! They, God. they had no, um, no stage sound right. at all. Right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. crazy. So I just played 
feeling the vibrations. No monitor world. Right. Like, yeah, I wasn't using my ears. I was using my feet. And again, that's one of those things. I mean, you're not just doing doom, 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 doom. So, you know, I guess in a way, because the songs and the the style that you play, the more that you play it, you have so much going on that you can kind of, as long as you get the right tempo, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of fill in the blanks. If I'm playing to the meter, Mm -hmm. I'm usually in the pocket because I have so many things to play. I'm not holding out for i don't need the the timing right so so like guitar you kind of you kind of it's i guess it would it's um kind of playing both sides Mm -hmm. makes it a little bit harder because you are playing so much but then you can just turn and look at steve Mm -hmm. and just stare at him the whole time and blow him kisses and Mm -hmm. hopefully not fuck him up Mm -hmm. i mean because there's already there's a lot of that with you guys on stage, yeah, because we're we're there just trying to. I look at Steve and I want to stoke him out. You know, I look. Yeah, I look at the horn guys. I want to. You see, you see everybody getting each other's faces and. Oh yeah. Sometimes I'm trying to kick them and. Yeah, you know, you got to remember, there's more guys on that stage than most bands. Yeah. So it's kind of it, again, kinda tight it's space. A, it's the camaraderie. So you you have to be comfortable mm-hmm. stepping on each other's toes, basically, because that's a thing. Unless you know, when you play some places, you go at the soda bar. That stage is tiny. I mean, I look at it, and the projects that I'm doing right now, they're all, well, Desi Source is just two of us, and we're going to probably bring in a drummer. But, yeah, it's just three. All the projects that I'm currently working on is three people. So I look at a stage. I mean, I look at where I jam in there, and that, that room's not enough. It's like if I move the drums into where we're recording now, then I have enough room. But then you add seven people. Yeah, you ever played Joe and Andy's out in La Mesa? No. Yeah, I try to do that. I've I've played some small <laughs> stages, and it's yeah, that's that's where um, as long as there's the stage isn't too tall, mm-hmm. and I can go onto the floor because I've had to do that. There is a, a place out in La Mesa that we played where, luckily, I'm I'm loud enough and distorted enough. The only time I need to be on stage is for doing vocals. So, you know, I can go down onto the floor and just play there or start walking outside if I if it's small enough. And there was places, God, there's stages around here from the old days. Um, trying to remember that one stage. It was so small, um, like the Texas Tea House down here in OB, remember mm-hmm. that place? But there's stages that made our side stage or the dungeon at either of the Somas, those would look like main stages compared to these. Mm-hmm. So squeezing you guys in and you're just sitting there, you know, basically, yeah. <laughs> was the smallest uh, stage on that In Defense of Ska tour, uh, Eugene? Was that the smallest one? Yeah, I think so. That little Best food, small stage. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> the loading area was in the back and was like dirt. So the oh yeah, you were stage. telling me about that nightmare. <laughs> and wasn't it raining? No. Okay, not that one. No, they had to have their wall of Zion, you know, kind of closed. They said that you couldn't have the door open. Door open for some reason. Yeah, it was a it was a law there. It was Oregon. just weird that whole that whole yeah. vibe of that town. Yeah, was the, weird. the curtain had to be closed when we were loading in because they couldn't have like an open thing in there because the bars open. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, some yeah. some damn good shepherd's pie. Yeah, it was. It was really good. That yeah, was. It was a fun show. And when we were out there, I escaped. I I saw a skate park just a couple blocks away. Yeah. And I 
I bailed from the venue after load in and sound check. And I just sat there at a skate park watching all these kids skate. And it was really cool. Cause you got to remember too, like, like Andy was saying earlier, uh, that whole tour, we provided the back line. So yeah. we had to load in first mm-hmm. and load out last where nobody, everybody else was just taking their guitars, their horns or whatever, leaving the, leaving the stage and taking off and going where, wherever they're going to go. We always had to be the last one to leave. Yeah. They want us there first and they want, and we had to be the last one to leave. Well, load in and then dial the room in too with yeah. the sound check. Yeah. And, and depending on who, cause we alternated headliners between Mustard Plug and Buck Nine. So, you know, one city would be their city, one city would be our city. So yeah, it was, it was rough. Mm-hmm. Mm. But, you know, luckily the excitement and then the occasional skate park you can run off to. Mm hmm. But what's what's been the worst stage that you've ever been on? Like where you, if it was say the venue was brought up again, mm-hmm. even if it was just a one off or in the middle of a tour, mm-hmm. is there a stage where you're just like, no, I'm I don't want to be on that. The stage we played at that street fair, I think in 2019 in San Diego, that Adams my, Avenue, street my birthday party show, which I didn't, I wasn't at the show. Is that the one? <laughs> call it. Yep. It was it was seriously rocking in every direction. It felt very unnerving. Like oh it, no! It ruined my concentration to even play up there because it felt like the whole whole thing was just gonna. We were probably eight feet up in the air, and the whole thing is just rocking in every direction, and like didn't feel stable at all. And it made me really really nervous. Can you, can you bring up what happened at that show? Or I don't, I don't know if I can. Maybe not on the record. But yeah. all right, oh, yeah. we won't bring it yeah. up. Sorry, people. <laughs> yeah, someone decided to jump off the stage. And- cause problems for us so but uh, that's all resolved now so, oh okay yeah they're <laughs> dead or no jail no, no just not, not that good they just you, you know, can read about it or see it on tmz if you maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah just but it had, yeah. it had nothing to do with the band it was uh security matters yeah and, you know yeah well there's no stuff, reason stuff to, we used yeah. to have to deal with back back at the soma days oh yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah. that's that's a different story i just like geeking out on on Bass play. I mean, I'm sitting here with another bass player. There's, so like you know, first, in my head, first there's time, right? <laughs> on a podcast that we've done. Yeah. I don't, think we had, I don't think we had any other bass players come in. Um, just with the Calvins, but. Yeah, other than a whole band. You know, and I I didn't want to geek out too much because there was three other guys in the band. They're going, we don't care about you and the bass player talking. <laughs> We're all here. <laughs> Talk know? to the rest of us, please. Yeah. But no, there's, you know, because there's, um, I was just remembering the other night um, or other day, because I, I mow lawns for a living. So I'm, I'm working, I'm listening to a podcast and um, something had, had come up and I was also, you know, trying to think of questions and, and directions of, of where to go with, you know, just asking and sitting with people. So I had this one event we did, I believe it was the Newport Art Institute or something. It's this really weird thing. It was outside. We were playing with this noise band called Dog. And the guy basically, he would do noise. It was like a noise project. And he would just layer textures of noise and and electronics and then do vocals over it. So there was... God, maybe, maybe 20 people. And this was a, I think it was just a three of us. Maybe, maybe there was four of us, but the band urine when I was doing urine. So I'm doing bass, dirty bass, 
vocals, drummer, guitarist. And we had a clean bass player, but I don't think he went to this. So we show up at this thing. Dog does their thing. And, you know, artsy people, we went and got a whole bunch of alcohol. So I remember getting um, the 40 ounces of uh, apple cider. So I had a couple of those. So I was, you know, primed, really primed. We're playing, and I use a lot of distortion, a lot of noise in this project. Chatter guitar player breaks like two or three strings. So for the couple people that are still there, and then the guy from Dog was still there, I'm improvising with our drummer, Shane, doing noise and distortion and just trying to keep the vibe going, but kind of trying to not lose the interest of the people that are losing interest, including <laughs> Chad on guitar, as he's trying to string up more strings to play. And as awful it was, and as kind of scary and intimidated it was to be out of town, to be that lit, to have it be that much of just a complete disaster as far as our set, everyone there loved it. The dude from Dog's like, oh man, I want to work with you. If I send you stuff, will you lay tracks on it? I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll have to get a, you know, a four track. But yeah, and I eventually ended up doing that. Complete nightmare. Mm-hmm. Everyone loved it. And I'm like, how could that be? This is, you know, the worst time I've ever played live. Is there anything that compares to that where you're just like, I cannot believe this was just an absolute shit show, but everyone's just like, fuck it, that was rad. Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, or just maybe you're not feeling it, maybe you're not in tune, maybe you're right. not really observing what's going on. But for Bucko 9, I think a lot of it's been vibe. And as long as everybody's having a good time, we're not really focused on the perfection of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're usually just going off. If we flub a note, so be it. It's we're having fun. We're having more fun than trying to be precise. It's part of the live show. Right. Well, that's that shit happens. And because of that, there was um someone had either I think it was uh the drummer for uh Cimentario, the the more noise band that I'm doing. I'm playing with this kid David. He's um, he's 18 and really talented kid on guitar, on guitar and on drums, but he's doing drums in this project. He's really into like Mashuga and that mathematical crazy, mm-hmm. freaking love that stuff. Mm-hmm. So he had sent me this video. It had, if I remember correctly, about 128,000 views on, I think it was either a reel on Instagram or YouTube the kid on drums quit and walked off stage because the vibe wasn't there and he wasn't feeling it. If I remember the the tag on it. So, and this, it looked like a young kid and I'm thinking to myself, has there ever been a time where the show has been so bad where I've just walked off and it's like, no, I'll, I'll reach down and, I've done some crazy shows with poor and cockroach and I mean, but you know, my shows are kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen me play because we didn't, none of the bands played out too much. Well, I probably saw you at Soma at some point, you know, you know, with my red Mohawk and just absolute artsy madman cockroach was with the, the dodgeball mm-hmm. guys. And then we did that when, when Jay from Spazboy, but the idea 
letting the kids know that it's all right if you're not feeling the vibe that you can just walk off stage. Number one, that's not professional at all. And that's something that when I was, you know, trying to work with bands and like when you guys would come through as Stinkaholic and everyone in early days, if a band member couldn't play, I remember getting on the horn, just telling everyone, well, just come down and either try to replace them. If you can't do that, just go up and do what you can so that your audience sees that you're still professional and that you're into this and that you care about them. Even if you just show up and tell all your fans that you can't play, unfortunately, this happened. But to be on stage and to walk off stage. Yeah, that's a, you're letting your people down. Well, yeah. just, like, just like that injury he got in Chicago. I mean, he, he could have totally walked off on. the stage because mm-hmm. he was pretty badly injured. Yeah. I mean, it's, but he, he, you know, he fought through it and, and performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's, that's what we're there to do. You know, it's put on a show. And that's the thing, too, is I think it's good for the younger listeners or anyone in, in a band to know from someone who is established as yourself. As long as you're up there and you're giving it the college try, just don't phone anything in. Right. You know, just do your best. Mm-hmm. And just it's not the end of the world if something happens. Like, I've again, I was thinking about this. There was another show we were playing. One of the famous Hollywood um the bars, but it was really weird because there was hardly anyone in there when we were playing. Everyone was out in the back. So someone had said, and there was a lot of Hollywood elites and a lot of, you know, foo-foo, you know, Hollywood. And it was with Simpson 77 and I broke my A string. So I had to quickly improvise because most of everything I did in Simpson was on the A string. So I had to quickly improvise and then do it on the E string, which, you know, when there's, E string notes mm-hmm. and then A, you kind of you have to really think and so I just went more into the energy and more of looking at Stoney, my guitarist, and and Lucy on, on keys and just trying to make it where I was in it. I was not phoning it in. I did a little bit more antics and I did what I could to just make it work because there was no way in hell. I think Someone eventually from another band gave me a bass, and I was like, oh, all right, I got an A string again. So we just, you know, just made it work. Right. But, you know, shit happens sometimes when you're on stage. Right. You almost fall off and almost kill yourself. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, some bands, they have fallen off. Uh, there's the the famous one where um, someone uh, got blown up with their own pyrotechnics. Oh, jeez. Metallica. Mm-hmm. Remember when James got... Fried. So that's an excuse to walk off of the stage. But if you miss a note, smile. Smile. Yeah. And just just recover and or like me and go, what the fuck was that? (laughs) (laughs) I was still playing. The show must go on. Yeah, there was there was a show we were playing with the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones in um, House of Blues, Anaheim, downtown Disney, when it was still over there. And um, we're playing sound system as as we always do every show. um, Operation (laughs) Ivy cover. And my bass just is, it drops out. It's gone. Like, yeah. For whatever reason, the guys all look at me. We're still in the song. I'm telling them to keep going, keep going. I'm trying to diagnose what's going on. I got no sound, no sound. Got nothing going on. The sound man comes running out. I throw my bass. Here, take this. Boom. And I run off stage. The guys are still playing. Yeah. The show is still going on. Yeah. I kick open the door to the Mighty Mighty Boss Towns. I'm like, where's Gittleman? I need, I need to borrow his bass real quick. Uh, I don't know. I think he's on the roof having a cigarette or something. 
crap. So I go right back to the stage and the sound man has Gittleman's bass in his hand. He goes, he goes, here you go. You can use this. And I was like, sweet. Popped it on, plugged it all right in, had a thump thump. The guys were just finishing the song. Mm -hmm. And then I had no, I had sound a good go, gave him thumbs up. And next song we went, didn't miss a beat at all. Just jumped right back into it. See, that's awesome to test to the rest of the band. They're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we don't need him right now. We got this. Yeah. He, he's going to figure it out, mm-hmm. and he's going to come back on stage. Yeah, we didn't need to do like, all right, let's hold on, let's let's stop the show real quick. Right? And, no, we just we just steamrolled through the and whole thing. And there's always a lot going on during that mm-hmm. that song. So yeah, I mean, all of it's important, sure, but um, but also I didn't want the show to stop. I wanted the guys to keep playing, keep playing. I'm going to figure this out. Right. I've got this. I don't. You know, just let's just keep going. And they, they know, again, it's the professionalism. God, it just, see, this is something I don't think I've really, that we've ever really dove in with any band and, and in talking about anything about, you know, when you, when something like this happens mm-hmm. and the band just has enough confidence that, yeah, well, we got this. He's going to figure it out. Yeah, and then he's going to get back up on stage and we're just going to, you know, right. it's not a big deal. It is what it is. It's live. I realized it's, when. It's panic though. There's a little bit oh, of panic, yeah, yeah, until everything is restored. It's, it's, but, it's scary. Yeah, but I think after that moment, particular moment, I, I felt like I was ready for anything. So it kind of builds character. It's oh, just, yeah, totally. I mean, just just throwing my bass to the, to the stage manager, sound guy, and I was just like, here, take this. and I Because I just needed somewhere to get it off me so I can run off stage. Right. And then I just instinctively went to their dressing room looking for him. I was just looking for a bass. Because the, t- yeah. the clicker is you know, clicking down, it's all seconds, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It felt like, it felt like 20 minutes to me, but it probably was a minute and a half. Yeah. In real time. So. Exactly. There, there's been times at the club that we, well, I know I usually forget is, um, cause the power has gone out mm-hmm. on both clubs a couple of times. I believe one time. Light, lights, sound, all kinds of yeah, shit. Yeah. I mean, we, we blew at Metro, we blew a breaker. I believe it was when meat was playing, and Lynn got pissed at me because, I mean, anything would happen and he would get pissed at me. Like, what the fuck is going on? But I believe Meat was playing and I think we blew one of the breakers. And, you know, Meat wasn't exactly easy listening. It was not Jazz 98. Meat was down-tuned, heavily distorted, growly vocals, screaming vocals, pounding in your face, if you don't have a bowel movement at the end of the song, <laughs> there's still another song coming. I mean, it's you know, it's brutal type stuff. And so it kind of adds to that air of anything can happen, which personally, being a performer, I like that. Mm-hmm. But seeing other bands go through that when something does happen, bass drops out, guitar drops out, um, whatever, Stinger jumps into the crowd and then he's gone for a couple of minutes. You know, I couldn't imagine doing, especially in the early days, doing an Iggy Pop show. Mm-hmm. You know, Iggy's a fucking madman. Right. I mean, got the more that I get older, the more that I look at him and go, I guess he was a heavy influence on me. But those shows where, you know, anything can happen, it's about to get out of control. And that's at every show. And it's that excitement that makes it live, but it's how professional people are about it and how they approach it and how they deal with it. That either you're never coming back to play that club again, or they're like, you know what? Can you guys stay another night? Because we have this other band that we're not too sure about. Mm-hmm. It's the the professional 
attitude and the way that you deal with things. Well, it's also what makes those shows stand out. Too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's like if every show went super good, those shows aren't going to stand out. They, they become generic. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Speaking of, what's, let's hear something. We got something newer that... You can share with us. Um, I can't share any of the new newest Buck Nine stuff yet, just yet, because it's still in the creation process. It's, it has to be put up by the label before yeah, you can share it. Yeah, we're not allowed to share any of that kind of stuff yet, but um, because of rights and all that. But um, what's something something, something that highlights you? Okay, um, so when I first started in Buck Nine, um, John Pebsworth, our singer, Jonas Kleiner, and our drummer at the time, Jeff Hawthorne. We started doing a side project called the Winos. Okay, and I know we played Union. Yeah, uh, I know we played it once, maybe twice. Not Union Metro. Metro, or is it the new place? It was the it was the Linda Vista place. That's okay, Metro. Metro. Yeah, um, yeah, and I know we played once with. I have the flyer in, in my uh, thing somewhere, but what year was that? Two thousand. No, that's the new Soma. The the sports arena one. Yeah, because okay. Metro closed down in ninety nine. And then Scott and I opened it might have the been, new one in 2002. It might have been that early. I just know we played Soma. But uh, th- we, this is our little side project we did without the horns and, and Buckle Knight. And it was a little more down and dirty thing. So this one's called Shrunken Head. Okay, cool. And different pl- bass playing too.
So that's the winos. I like that a and lot. We used to play um, the Epic Center, as my buddy Cosme calls it, the non-Epic Center. <laughs> Which, which uh, John used to run at one time. Yeah, yeah. John was doing a lot of booking and got to see a lot of really cool bands like Bedouin Sound Clash there, and um, it was a, it was one of those interesting like YMCA feel places. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it, did, it, I did a couple shows there. Yeah, when uh, uh, was working for Golden Voice, and actually, uh, I think the last show I went there was for the first show of Boxcar Racer. Mm. Okay, the first time they played live. That'd have been sweet. Is it? Is that the place in Mira Mesa that's... Yes. But, oh, okay. Yeah, I grew up in Mira Mesa. Well, I started in OB, and OB Point Loma, and then we moved to Mira Mesa in 71, back when it was still being developed. But I went, because I'd heard about the Epicenter, and, you know, when I when I left Stone, I just dropped out. I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life now. And um, But I ended up going, my nephew was in a band, they played there. And going there, number one, going back to Mira Mesa, because I basically avoided Mira Mesa like the plague, literally. And then um, going to that venue, I'm like, this is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm personally, as much as I like what uh, Jerry and Scott did at the newer Soma, and now it's really, really corporate. I mean, it's it's nice and all that, but I'm used to downtown for like a punk rock club. That's even the Metro one to me was, was a little bit, you know, kind of clean, but the epicenter, it just seemed like you don't want to throw a freaking punk rock show in this place. It was all, it was all glass windows. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking even like right now I'm thinking about picking up a brick and throwing it through one, you know? So going into that place, it's like, oh, this is, this is interesting, but it was cool that there's, you know, venues for, for people to play at. But this is the type of thing that I could see you guys playing in a small, dirty... Casbah. Dirty, yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you guys put anything out other than this? Is there like a seven-inch or... No, we just put out that one one deal. And then Jonas ended up wanting to play more rhythm and blues stuff, so he he peeled off from this little project we were doing. And then John, Jeff, and I continued on with our new name, Jet Cinema. Mm-hmm. And we we started doing that for a little bit, and we played like Casbah, Velvet at the time, I think, and um, you know the non Epic Center. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when did know. the Epic Center close down? That's a good question, huh? I want to say somewhere around two thousand five ish. Was maybe, was John uh, still running it? Or? I don't know. I don't know. I think they just sold it or it closed down or something. Or yeah, it's just a weird. That whole place was weird because I did some of the first shows there and after Soma closed down and it was actually, I was asked to run it and I was going on, uh, I was going to go on Ozfest and I said, nah, I'm turning it, I'm turning it down. That's when John got, took it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird how everything's full circle. Right. I mean, there's all these little places. I mean, I remember back in the day, Shea Cafe and, um, you know, yeah. um, uh, Soul Kitchen. Yep. You know, yep. there's, there's all these little. Mesopotamia. World, yeah. world mm-hmm. Beat Center. Yeah. World Beat, when it was right here on Kettner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that's um, um, they put apartment buildings, uh, low income, this whole huge complex where that was, mm-hmm. um, and then in the back of the World Beat Center, well, the, then Ezod had it showcase, and then um, back behind that is where they had the Gothic 
club. There was a dance club back there. Cause you know, that's, that's the roots of where Soma was is it was a dance club mm-hmm. and, um, Gothic club industrial. And then it was slowly once I got brought into the mix in 89 and that's when I started booking a lot of shows in the dungeon. That's where all that came up from. But during that time, the epicenter and you know a lot of other places started closing well, down. Well, the epicenter didn't exist until until after mid ninety, actually the late nineties. Um, after so what was after the metro closed down? What was the other one that was an industrial park? Another a low ceiling, poorly. Oh, that, that was the scene. The scene. Yeah. Okay. And both basically, when we opened the new Soma, the scene and Canes went away. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, and, and there was um. So Canes was down in PB. There was other places in PB. There, um, Canes was Mission Beach. Oh, okay. Bel- Belmont Park. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm trying to think. There's, because you know there was a lot of different places to play around town, mm-hmm. and as that slowly started to deteriorate. Were you guys, as Bucko 9, did you find yourselves playing locally more or going out and playing, like, festivals and... I'd say a little bit of both. I mean, San Diego kind of has this thing where you shouldn't be playing too many shows in a certain period of time. Oh, yeah. You know, so that would always push us out to at least play Phoenix, Vegas, South, anywhere in the Southwest where you could get out and play some shows, like, every six, nine months. So that did kind of help. and Which we still do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because now, because I know um, my guitarist um, or the the drummer for the one band, his um, his buddy or his, can't remember the name. I'd like to give him a shout, but he's he's booking the Che, mm-hmm. so the Che's coming back. Um, I like the Triton. Did you ever go to any shows there? No, that was also up at the college. Do you go to any shows there? Oh my god, it was a great place. Um, but so the Che is doing shows. There's um Queen Bees and they're twenty dollars for local bands, which is seems like extortion. Mm-hmm. But that's different time, different play or a different conversation. There's a lot of places, and I can't remember all the different places. There's OB has something going on now. Bands seem to be basically playing two to three times, if not more, a week. And there's all these places where they're playing. But back, that's the formula that we had, or I started with from Lynn, and then Jerry carried on, is you don't play, and we, we've discussed this many times, you don't play your hometown constantly. You should branch out. Mm-hmm. Because if you play too much and you saturate the town, people will stop coming right. to your gigs. Right. Overkill. Right. But it doesn't seem that way anymore. I mean, people are just playing all the freaking well, time. It, it, I think that's because of COVID. That's exactly where I was going to try to come around to. Is is it because of COVID that are things opening up more for Buck 09 for you guys right now? Or um, are you so concentrated on getting this album out? Or what's... what's... Yeah, I'd say it's a careful dance of all of that stuff. Um, we're trying to remain focused on the album. Um, we all have our personal life stuff going on. And then we try to put in some shows every now and then. But sometimes working on the album occupies that time that we maybe could be playing a right. show. Right. So yeah, sometimes it gets in the way. So, and then so the last show you saw, Rolando, um, there was three days in the studio recording. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Prior to that show, I know Tony was in the studio with John 
doing vocals and stuff. Like that was the first day, the two or three days leading up yeah. to that yeah. Orlando show. So we just try to consolidate that whole thing. And then, and then it was backing vocals. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And didn't Jerry uh, get yeah, some vocal yeah. work I did, on? I did yeah. some backing vocals on one song. Woohoo! So he's going to be on vinyl. I'm still not on vinyl. Oh, okay. At, at all. <laughs> and it, well, no, wait, I take it back. I do. Um, there was a short-lived back in the day. Um, I am one of, I don't know, I think there's six or eight of us that did some some backing for Happy Days, one of the songs. So that's as close. Out of the, I don't know, probably close to 20 different demos and and cds that i put out with all the bands um but you know no vinyl but coming full circle is there a side project you're working on right now no i'm in my little in my house in my hometown i'm i kind of lease myself out as as an audio engineer Mm -hmm. so i've been doing that for 20 years okay um along with tony um i do all my bass lines at my house at home and i send him my tracks where Tony has to go to the other guys and capture their parts and put them to put them together. Um, I just phone it in to Tony and like, Oh, your DI and your mic track is waiting for you in the, in your, e- in your email. You're good to go. Tony, you know, Tony does all the recording and he does the mixing and the mastering. Yeah. And I have the credits of assistant engineer. Cause he has the home studio. With, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. See that just, you know, when you put it that way, it's like, well, you don't, really need a side project if you're just constantly so you're obviously you know fairly busy would you consider yourself comfortably busy with everything you got going on where it's all man pretty manageable and and back to my skateboard history and stuff um 20 years ago in el cajon i would intern for steve steadham mm-hmm. at his recording studio out there in el cajon yeah and i spent a good couple of years with him he's kind of we were going through that whole phase of transitioning from analog from two inch to ADAT to computer to digital. Yeah. And so we were just kind of both tackling all that together. And then we would go into the, the parking lot and just push our skates around a little bit. And, yeah. and, um, anyway, last time I saw Steve was, um, probably 10 years ago at a NAM, a NAM event. And I, I ran into Steve again. It was really, so cool. I didn't know he had a recording studio. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, <clears throat> he's got a metal band now, doesn't he? Yeah. I played jazz. Um, I played a seven string bass in his jazz project back. At the seven time. string. Yes. Yes, sir. The noise I can make with that. <laughs> it was like before all this, all the metal stuff came out. So it was oh, mostly used metal, for yeah. jazz. And, mm-hmm. um, but I played a couple shows with Steve Steadham, um, like closer to downtown. We'd be one of those bands out in a corner somewhere playing some jazz in the corner. Oh, wow. I, was kinda, I had no idea. Cause you know, you've got, the board up there, and then I've mm-hmm. got the board back here. He had coffee at one point. I got some coffee from him. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I've, I've probably, getting back to skateboarding, probably skated with them somewhere. My wife used to have a ramp when they were in Linda Vista. So, I've, God, I wish I could remember the guy's name that was a regular there. But um, I asked um, um, up here, uh, what's his name? Stobb. Kevin, um, I asked him, and there was someone else. She doesn't quite remember because she was young. So this was the 80s. But, you know, back in the 80s, very, very, very few half pipes anywhere. Mm-hmm. For one, you know, it wasn't popular. If you skated vert, what, what 
the fuck is vert? A ramp made out of wood? Well, there's vert or street. You didn't, yeah. You didn't really do a lot of both. When I grew up, it was, you rode a skateboard. You were sidewalk, sidewalk surfing. Like, I still, to this day, I cannot do a kickflip. Mm. I never learned. I learned the old ones, the, the first ones. But once Rodney started basically taking freestyle and making it all into street style, mm-hmm. I would do a boneless. I would kind of finger flip, but that wasn't my whole gig. So full circle, I think I probably did skate with Steve. I skated with a lot of people back in the day, even went to Del Mar a couple of times, but it wasn't on, on the radar and I didn't even think of them doing music. So bringing full circle back again, you got skateboarding music, San Diego and all these different connections at this point with Buck 09 and everything that you're doing, what what is, you know, what drives you through the day? Like, what what do you think about when you're getting up in the morning? Is it to go into the studio to work on a new bass line? Is it, it could putting be. on a skate video? What? Yeah. Well, I'm, in my spare time, I do a lot of video editing, whether it be our documentaries that were the tour stuff or mm-hmm. I've worked on a lot of um, music videos, professional stuff um, for Side One Dummy. I've been a video editor and a cinematographer for 20 years. Did you work on uh, Pick It Up? I did. I sent I sent Pick It Up all the the raw the raw footage for all the Bucko Nine stuff that I had on VHS. Um, everything that those guys, uh, my guys, have had, they give to me. I'm I'm the archive keeper. So you, you digitized yeah. everything. I, digi- I digitized everything and gave them all the samples that were used in the movie. So you were. Very busy. You don't. I almost swapped this one little bit of live footage that they used, and I, I, I almost put the version of me in it instead of Scott. But I feel like that would probably <laughs> been a mean trick. You know? <laughs> so that way you get in the in the movie. Yeah, there's there's one show we played the Belly Up a long time ago, and Steve, when Jeff was our drummer at the time, and Steve was visiting, and he gave him play a couple songs, and I had the footage of it was like we were really young. And um, it just it was me playing bass and not Scott, but I almost put that in the movie. That's funny. But I figured it'd be too too hardcore of a prank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> and it's kind of hard. Oh, it's my bad. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know how that <laughs> gonna, got there. I was going to ask you too. Um, when did you start with the uh, Mikey and his you? When did you start? Oh, doing yeah. stuff like um, that? during the pandemic, I started seeing a lot of his stuff. Shout out to Mikey. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your movies. Uh, your your videos, but um, I reached out to him and just say, hey, hey, this is Andy from Buck 09. I'm, real, I'm a big fan. I would love to help out in any way, be part of your stuff. And he ended up contacting me like a few weeks later and was like, yeah, I, I love your band, Andy, and I'd really like you to be on the series. So Nice. My first one was doing Same in the End by Sublime with um, Dave McWayne from uh, Big D and the Kids Table, uh, Lawrence Katz from Mighty Mighty Boston's, and of course, uh, Darren Pfeiffer from uh, X Goldfinger and Punk Rock Karaoke. And so I got to do that. And um, Eric even mentioned in the comments, he was like, oh, that guy Andy did a great job. It's really cool. That was really rewarding. That was yeah. that sold it for me right there. And then I got to do uh, a couple Rancid songs, um, As Wicked and um, Dally City Train. And then I also did um, a cover of The Vandals, Oi to the World, where I did a whole keyboard orchestra. I replicated what Joe did in the on on my MIDI keyboard for all the Mikey asked me to do all that stuff and then play bass on it as well wow. with a bunch of people so I got to do that was really really cool and really fun I shot all that stuff that I did around the property of my house up in the mountains and stuff and I just sent it in and Mikey handled the rest of it handled the mix and and the editing and everything else and that was really cool 
That's nice. Those are my favorite videos to show because, I mean, I'm playing with some pretty awesome artists and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, um, anything like that coming up? Any projects that, uh, nothing on the table right now at this moment. I just got a major job promotion at my, at my employer up in near Yosemite. And so that kind of keeps me busy 60 hours a week for the most part. Oh, wow. Doing all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, but I, I try to play music anytime and every time I can in my home studio. It's as easy as walking in there, flipping everything on and, and going for it. So, yeah. When do you think the, uh, the album's going to come out, the new Buck on Night album? Uh, I, my guess at this point, since when we did the live record, it, it got pushed till June, you know, when we finished it in June, and they said it would probably come out in April. So I'm guessing April. Can we mention the title of the album? Uh, I cut out the noise as the working title right now. So. Okay, cool. And, um, I think this record's going to have some, it's got some pretty like mellow vibes and it's got some pretty rad vibes too. So yeah, there's some pretty punky songs mm -hmm. on there. Yeah. yeah. And from the text I got yesterday from the guys, I think Tony is putting his vocals and his trumpet parts down this week. Oh, nice. And I've redone my bass parts probably four or five times right now on some songs. Cause I have the freedom of doing it whenever I want, whenever right. I feel it. So I can just go, Oh, I want to update this. And I update it and I send it to and, him. And there's a song on there that just Tony sings on by himself, right? Yeah. There's, I think there's a couple, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of these songs we've had for a few years and we just kind of sing them on tour and I put them as Easter eggs in our documentary movies and yeah. stuff like that. So keep the guys, keep them listening to it and stuff. But, well, when we when I do the uh, the info and all this, we're gonna definitely have to list all the projects and where that you know to share with the public um, and all your social media and all that. But in the meantime, because we're, I know that you've got a long drive ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there another song that we can play before we uh, start wrapping some things up? Let's see what I got here. Um, so I was doing a. I was, I was doing all my in my. 18, 20 years here living here in San Diego, I was always busy playing in bands and playing with artists and learning engineering, um, all that kind of stuff that mm -hmm. influenced me through the years. So I just, I just have done a lot of stuff and it's, it's been a real privilege yeah. to do, to do every, when I, when I'm up at my house in the mountains, I just, I reflect on the walls and then the skateboard decks that I have and everything. And it brings back a lot of great memories. Yeah. And, um, I'm just, I re reflect on it and I'm just super proud of, of what I've been able to accomplish and what this town has like enabled me to experience. Right. It's, right. It's pretty phenomenal when I think about when I was way back 30 years ago when I was living in my little town and contacting and meeting Blink and, and Bucko Nine and, and a handful of other bands. And then, and just how that led to connecting with them here in San Diego and mm -hmm. being in the band. And just all that stuff. It's just, it's amazing how it works out. Yeah. So yeah. it's a small world with the music it community. Is. People don't realize how, mm -hmm. how small it is, but it is. Yeah. And I, I wish I was more proactive, like in meeting all you guys at the club and stuff. We were so just into our music. And after we play a live show, whether it be at Soma or wherever, we would go back to the rehearsal room and play more. Wow. Like that was, that was our, our routine. Like, yeah. And I, again, it's the the professionalism and, you know, just on my part, by the end of it, I, I was a wreck. I was, I was so stressed mm -hmm. out. I was trying to carry so many things. So mm -hmm. I wasn't exactly the most approachable, but now 
I can honestly say that I, I, I appreciate everything that you've done. I appreciate you coming in here and, and chatting with Jerry and I. And I had no idea of the connection again to skateboarding. Because we could have just sat out back and, you know, I would have brought a board in the car and we could just sit out there and do slappies for mm-hmm. an hour. But again, and you know, I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So hearing all that and for whenever Jerry and I sit with anyone and we get to learn the stories, that's that's what I love to hear. Mm-hmm. It's just all the little tidbits that make certain person that, you know, their band is one thing. But outside of that, mm-hmm. I like to learn the story. So let's, let's what, what do you got lined up for us here? Yeah. And then with the skateboarding, that's like the old Santa Cruz skate video, Streets on Fire. Like yeah. The Nottis Coppice stuff. That's that's what got me into a lot of music, especially like Firehose. Yeah. And a lot of those bands and stuff. That's really mm-hmm. how I got wedged into skate music was thanks to Santa Cruz and the Powell Peralta videos and all that stuff. That was our only... We had no internet at the time, so that was the only way we were able to hear bands. Yeah, in that genre was through skate mixtapes, and then the skate mm-hmm. videos. Really, to this day, that's still something that influences a lot of the youth. Yeah, right. All right, so I'm gonna just uh, close this out with Jet Cinema. This was uh, John on vocals um, and guitar, and then Jeff on drums and myself on bass. It's called Friends. I think it's probably a good one to close it out to tonight. All right. Since well, I'm with friends. Well, thanks, Andy, for coming down. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a drive. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank right. you. I've got these friends come from San Francisco. They've got ideas about breaking all the laws. They seem to set me straight when I've got no friends to call on I sometimes dream about them asking me to join them Not down another drink, that forcing me to think My education I've got these friends that come from shit-forgotten towns They manage thoughts about better days to come It'll be years before anyone will hear them And when they do, they'll hear it time and time again Not down another drink Just forcing me to think my education Yeah Sometimes I feel
This podcast was recorded at Red Rum Skates. Mixed by me, Jer. Music provided by Breakacre. We appreciate all our listeners and our guests. Please stay tuned until the next one. Have a great one. Bye.